You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. Welcome to episode... I don't even know what episode we're on. Is it 70? Are we on 70? Yeah, because we, we missed a week, and the last one we did was 69. Yeah, man, I'm proud of us. And I'll never remember what number we're on ever again. So now, we're, so now Six, we're on... Last one was 69, so... Now we're on 69 with a finger in the butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a 70, man. 70. <laughs> when we were on 68, we were like... We were like... 68 is like... When people are horribly mismatched in height, like one person's really tall and one person's really short, and they try to 69, but they can't quite do it, that's a 68. Sucking on a belly button. <laughs> Sucking on Just a belly button. Just not quite there. Welcome. <laughs> Six, 69 is everybody knows what a 69 is, and 70 is 69 with a finger in the butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like, oh, you don't know what a 70 is? It's, it's an old Carlin joke. <laughs> it's a 70. <laughs> Welcome to X... Uh, Welcome to episode 770 of the motherfucking podcast. I'm Aaron Howell. I'm Logan O'Connor. I'm Gordo. And uh, this is the official podcast of the international power rock combo, Motherfucking Ruckus, from Denver and Chicago, respectively. Uh, man, we're going to jump right into it because we've got, we've got a guest I've been excited about. I've had on the calendar for a while. We've had to rearrange some things and, and move some things around, but we've, we've finally gotten our schedules together and made it work. Uh, our guest today is uh, the founder and frontman of the, the metal band Havoc. Uh, something of a Denver hero for sure, but also like a legitimate international like contender on the metal stage. Please welcome David Sanchez from Havoc. How do you do? To the show. Dude, I've been I've been looking forward to having you on the show, man. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Because the I uh, and I mentioned this a lot is we don't re- like what's fun about this is how often do you get to like sit down and have a conversation with someone that you're acquainted with that you know that you're you consider yourself friends with, but. It, like it's very rare that you actually get to sit down and have like an, an in-depth conversation with them. Yeah, and there's not people coming up to you at the bar and oh yeah, asking questions and yeah, yeah, especially especially in what we do, especially in what you do, because you travel a ton, and when you do get to see your friends, it's usually in a loud place where either are you even doing front of house sound anymore at all? Yeah, yeah, I still do monitors and front of house at some of the venues in town. Do you really? Yeah. But, who, uh, who are you still working for? I work for AEG, so I work at the Bluebird and Gothic Ogden. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, so even in those contexts where you're not playing, you're constantly being surrounded by people, and there's constantly noise going on, and there's and so if you like. Like, I can't even remember the last time that you and I have had a face-to-face interaction. It's probably... It's I think it's prob- been years. It's been over five years, yeah. at least. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it was probably at Moe's Barbecue or something like that, and it was a long, long, long time ago. Yeah, when I... Uh, you know, we tour so much that it's like social- socializing overload. 
So right. when I get home, it's normally like I just want to chill out and not go out. I do. The only, the only time I leave the house is to work or to uh, go to a concert. Right. That's about it. Right. You just hang. Just hang. and do you have permanent residence here? Yeah. In in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I live here. This is home. But uh, you know, I'm only here half of the time. How much time are you spending on the road these days? Yeah, when we get busy, it's like six months, seven months of the year we're gone. Holy shit. But uh, slow year for us has been like, this year has been pretty slow. We really haven't done anything. Uh, we're going out for a couple weeks next month, but I was just living in Nashville, Tennessee for a couple of months doing the new record. Okay, so you were down there doing Havoc stuff. Yeah, yeah, we were recording. That's awesome. Album number five. I don't suppose you happen to bring any rough mixes of anything. I don't have anything on me. All right, all right. It was it was worth asking. About. Well, that's the whole reason we had you. Yeah, thanks so, for coming in. Thanks for listening to episode <laughs> seventy of the podcast. <laughs> See y'all later. Yeah. Beep, beep, beep. No, so um, <laughs> so well, tell me a little bit about going down to Nashville and uh, where are you guys recording in Nashville? Uh, we did the record at the producer's house. He's got a studio in his house. The guy's name is Mark Lewis. He's done uh, stuff with Cannibal Corpse and DSI, Black Dahlia Murder, Trivium. Holy like, shit! A whole bunch Damn. of shit. Yeah, man. So, should sound pretty killer when it's all done. Is this is this a is this a big leap for you guys, or is this pretty much business as usual in in terms of like who you're working with and and the stakes on the record? And well, I think the stakes get higher every time because people expect more out of you every time, which is interesting. And it's something kind of funny to like watch go on with bands like Metallica or Iron Maiden or Megadeth or even ACDC. You know, where it's like. People want to see the next thing you're going to do, but they don't want to see you go too far out of out of the canon of your sure uh, of your material. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? So like someone like Metallica makes a big leap in in a different direction and their fans just turn on them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or if they do an album that sounds too much like the one previous people go yeah they're not doing anything new yeah you can't make everybody happy all the time no so what so then my i guess a good question is what do you start out with the end in mind when you make a record or are you just going in with whatever you happen to have recorded that year uh or demoed that year yeah it's pretty much we go in with like all the new ideas We, we don't have like a complete end goal in mind like this record has to have this feel or whatever uh it just kind of blossoms naturally right and, and blooms into whatever it becomes in the very early stages you just pair a couple of riffs together and you don't know exactly where it's going to head but then eventually a second guitar line come comes onto it or a bass line gets added to it or a drum beat and it totally changes the whole dynamic of what you originally had as just one riff you know, on one guitar. Right. Which is really fun to, to see the whole thing, like, explode in that way. Right. It, it's, uh, it, it gets creative and, you know, makes it really interesting, not boring. How how long were you down in uh, Nashville for? Two months. Two months. Okay. So yeah. that get, get, and were you guys working five-day weeks, like 10-hour days? What were you doing? <sighs> Most of the time we were doing, like, we'd probably do, like, 10 days on and take a day off. Okay. And we were normally going from, I'd say, like, 11 or noon till 8 or 10 in right, the, right, the right. evening. Right, and it's and it's, it's so if I'm understanding you correctly, like, you went in with pretty minimal demos. Like, generally just like you had a handful of riffs in we, mind. We, when we hit the studio, we already had everything demoed out minus vocals. 
Okay. We already knew, uh, had a good idea of all the structure. guitar parts, structure, the drum parts, the bass lines, the solos, but vocals didn't really have much of an idea. I was still writing lyrics in the studio the whole time, like right. trying to... Uh, <clears throat> I, I had a giant pile of lyrics and like phrases and ideas written down, but I didn't have them worked into right. a song format, like rhythmic, uh, you know, rhythmically working into the riffs and stuff like that until pretty last minute but i'm happy with how it came out um what are you writing about for the most part these days there, there's a lot of different themes on the record but i'd say the most common theme is probably uh has to do with fungal psychedelics <laughs> how very timely yeah no man that's cool that's really cool because i know i know lyrically um you know, you're not you're not writing songs just about partying and chicks and getting into fights and stuff like that. Like you're you're a pretty uh, oh God, what would you say? Like uh, like like you are a, a pretty thoughtful, reflective guy, and and generally speaking, you kind of have your ear to the ground in terms of of socio political climate in the world and things like that, and and. And are and are and are writing about maybe more um, more topical stuff. Is that is that a correct assumption? Uh, and yeah, at, at times I have been that way. Um, I came to this realization a number of years ago that like a lot of people are listening to the words that are in the songs. So I wanted to say something that actually really means a lot to me. Right. And if I can stoke a, a little bit of fire under need somebody's uh, passion to make the world a little bit better I think I'm doing my part right and I'm leaving something behind that's worthwhile because there's enough bands out there singing about the devil and shit yeah, like that yeah for sure <laughs> I generally I like, don't think so <laughs> there's never enough bands singing about the devil uh, I I don't know I generally my approach is generally I I, I like I remember seeing this interview with Paul Simon where Paul Simon was talking about how to write a song. And he was talking about, you know, you figure out the basic structure of the chords that you want and, like, like basically the way you want the song to go and what you want to sound like, and that kind of creates the mood. And then you kind of create phrases of just sounds, you know, just the way you want the cadence to work, the way you want the melody to work. And I'm, you know, I'm by no means a... Like at like the highest level melodist or anything like that, but I get a general idea of how I want the the cadence and the melody to work, and then I tend to based on whatever mood that evokes, along with whatever has been rattling around in my brain at the time, you know, I will kind of stir that into the pot and, and flesh the lyrics out from there. What would very similar? Very similar. What would you say? What would you say are the differences? What would you say are the similarities as far as what you do? Well, uh, I I reckon I do the same thing that Paul Simon does. Like you know, get the mood of the music and what that's kind of conveying, um, and try to match make make the lyrics match that mood, right? That vibe, because uh, you know some songs are like real downtrodden and scary and dark and some of them are have a little more pep in their step and are maybe a little more aggressive and showing right. their teeth right and right, right. Uh, I, I let that kind of guide where my lyrical direction goes it, it's not something that I f 
force into the song. It's something that I kind of have to bend what I want to do to make it work with the song. I try to not serve like my ego and what I want to do, but try to do what the song is asking for. Serve the song. Serve the song, not your ego. Yeah. Like, like there's a thing where I've, I've written out, I've written out lyrics is just kind of like poetry before. And then have been going around with a fucking hammer, just trying to cram them into something. Right. Just going, I wonder if this will work here. And what almost always ends up happening is the lyrics completely change. A whole verse will drop off. Right. You know, just because it doesn't fit. Or structurally, it completely changes. And I I find if I just kind of what you were saying, have like a pile of ideas Mm -hmm. and then kind of go in and and are you doing... um, when you record vocal parts, are you going in and doing uh, uh, like spacers, like going in and dropping just kind of gibberish, just like riffing? You know when you're like I'll, riffing? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll do that in my head. Um, I, we, we didn't like record any of that kind of stuff, but right. in my head I'm doing that when I'm listening back to the music. Um, and often I'll, I'll like air guitar the riff. So that whatever's coming out of my mouth naturally is something that is going to be comfortable to play along with. That's smart. <laughs> yeah. And, and right, I don't yeah. always do that, but sometimes where it's kind of a tricky guitar riff, uh, like I was recording some shit on, on the new record where I was air guitaring while I was freeballing the timing right. uh, of the vocal part. Because I wanted to make sure that I can pull it off live. Because you we've know, run into trouble with that. But, I mean, I it, that can be really tricky. Yeah. When some someday in the future you're like, oh, we should bust out this song. It's like, right. fuck. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. hard I, to do. Well, we've had we've had it. I mean, obviously, I don't play anything on stage, so it's not. It's generally not an issue. But we'll. But what we have run into is with background vocal parts. Sure. It's like Logan or Tony will be like, "There's no way I can play this part." And sing at the same time. Right. So, like, something that's like a, a where the background vocal is the primary hook, we end up losing that when we play it live. Sure. Because there, there's, like, no way to pull it up. Or sometimes I'll go in and, and, like, stack two or three different vocal parts. And then when I go to do it live, it's like, how do you do, how do you create a live arrangement for it? I think it's really cool that you go in and, like, begin with because Logan has made a point of that before on the podcast when we've talked about it is you have a preference and and this is an area where you and I kind of differ Logan is like you have a preference for writing things as though you are going to play them live so that you're not writing something that we're that you're not going to be able to pull off live whereas I'm I'm more want to go you know well let's write something and have the studio version of it and then create the live version of it, and it'll be you know it'll be a different arrangement, but people will just be excited to hear the song. Right. I I, I like a little of both. I like being like, oh, that's the studio version, having like that special thing you can listen to on the record. But ultimately, playing it live, it's like you kind of want that to come through. So. Especially the when vast majority, for sure. Right. 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 I mean, there can be little hooks and little bells and whistles here and there, but. Ultimately, you want the whole song to come. It through needs to be something that the crowd's going to to recognize. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, I'm also super critical about shit. So when right, I see right. a band and they don't 
do those things that I like that I hear on the record. I'm like, where's the little tink to tink tink or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, you yeah, know? No, totally. in, in all fairness, Queen back in the day, even when Freddie was alive, they would do the fucking Bohemian Rhapsody from the record. Totally. They would just play it. With just lights going on, and there's no band playing any of the parts. During the operatic During the fucking, like, crazy acapella shit. They would just play the track, and then they would come in at the end. Right. So, if Queen can do that shit, it's not not terribly offensive. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. They they were Queen, I mean. They, they They were Queen. But... But I mean, but that's the thing is they weren't always queen. Right. You know, what made them queen is they went out and they did whatever they needed to do to make it work. And I don't think the crowd. I mean, I would have to ask the entire crowd that was there for like, because that's easy to do. There's the video of of them. It's like live in Montreux or something like that where they do that and and they leave the stage and there's the big light show. And, uh, you know, you would have to ask everyone that was there. But I highly doubt that even a notable fraction of the crowd was sitting there with their arms crossed going, oh, they're not even going to play. They're not even doing it. <laughs> that, that operatic <laughs> breakdown yeah, with exactly. like 10 different voicings on it. You know, I mean, you can, the, like we've talked about, we do, we do things in the studio where you'll have like samples or you'll have like a synth player come in. Yeah. And we've talked about, we talked about sampling stuff. We tried to get Ty to put triggers on his drums or use a brain or something like that, and he just, he is emphatically against it. Like, he's like, he's like I just want to play my drums, just my action, even when it comes to, uh, to demoing. Because right now, and, and we've been kind of following our process over the last several episodes of how we're doing demoing now that Tony's moved home. And I've told Ty over and over again, like, dude, you know what would make this really 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 easy for everyone is if you just got a digital drum set and plugged into an interface and just recorded it at home your wife would appreciate it your kids would appreciate it and we'd appreciate it and he's just like no machines man nope <laughs> he won't do it so we went out and we got um focus right skynet is self-aware man yes yeah, skynet <laughs> keep it up <laughs> so we went out and we got a uh i got a oh shout out to our patrons who helped us buy this um I, we went out and we got one of those focus right interfaces that plugs into an iphone or ipad yeah and you can run one of these mics because uh, it also has uh, 40 uh, 48 volts of phantom power on it mm-hmm. and we've run that one mic in the room with Ty playing on the drums and he's been able to track his drums just one mic and probably sounds okay too yeah it sounds great yeah it sounds great and so Tony is able to send us something from Chicago on GarageBand to a click track he shares the project file with us and then we are able to each go in individually and add our parts including Ty now because we have this new piece of equipment yeah it's great yeah and I just found out, and I didn't tell you this yet, Logan, but I just found out when I was up at the Evergroove 13th anniversary party that they had. Mm-hmm. Dude, their desk is oh, so man, sick. Oh, man, I wanted to go to that. So Dude, the Evergroove looks so good with their they, – they renovated the whole thing, man. Gave it a total facelift. It looks great. But uh, Brad said that basically we'll go up there, we'll track drums – We'll track all the scratch stuff. Obviously, we'll do vocals there. He had said, you know, he wanted to have you in the room, if possible, for doing bass stuff. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, 
we could use literally any software and an interface and send him raw signals as a AIFF file and he can reamp all of it. Yeah. So Tony will be able to record all his overdubs and guitar solos long distance. Nice. You know, you'll be able to do stuff if you want to. Mm-hmm. You know, I know I know you and Brad kind of had a coaching relationship when you were right, up there. Right, yeah. I prefer to be in the room right. and in the studio, but I mean, I'm willing to give it a go. Well, and as far as, it, it just as far as demos, being able to send demos back and forth. Yeah, for real. And, and like, I keep, like, harping on this because I feel like, Bands need to know that that is like so easily accessible. It's amazing that I can. There. Yeah, it's amazing I can get away from Josh Finley's sweat. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, man. So it's so. Tell me a little bit about um, your demoing process because you write it, everything, right? Uh, no, I don't write everything. I I, I write a lot, but uh, definitely not everything. Um, we did a demo process similar to what you're talking about. So Pro Tools. Uh, now makes a free version of their software called Pro Tools First. And it allows you to do, I think, up to 16 channels in it. And nowadays, you can uh, upload that stuff, your session, onto a cloud and just fucking, like, find your buddy who also has the Pro Tools uh, account and just, like, email him the whole session. He can just download it and add his shit to it. Hit the little upload button, it goes back into the cloud, and you can download what he just added to it. Right. Nice. So we, we did a lot of stuff that way because it's super easy to do it remote, and the technology is insane. Like, you could literally make an album with people all over the world right. in, in no time. I, uh, so when, when Speedwolf kind of went to sleep, because I won't say broke up, when they kind of went to sleep, when they, when they they're went hibernating. Behind, they're hibernating, yeah. yeah. I was going to say that, and I was like, no. It was like... It was, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Because <laughs> wolves don't hibernate. Wait, do they? Do wolves hibernate? Gordo, look it up. Do wolves hibernate? I thought they did. <laughs> Hold on one sec. We're going to find out. Somebody's listening to this but, going, yeah, they fucking do. Yeah, yeah they, they do. do. Fucking you don't know shit about wolves. <laughs> you don't know anything about wolves. Um, but when, when Richie's kids were being born, not like while they were actually physically mm-hmm. being born, but like during the time when he wasn't really active playing in Speedwolf, um, he was getting contacted by people who were like asking him to drum on stuff remotely, like sending stuff back and forth. And just the fact that like he can be up at his house in Bailey, Colorado and play drums in his little home, you know, jam space and mm-hmm. send stuff to anywhere on the planet, dude. That's just, I don't understand, like, that's like in the music world. That is, in in my opinion, that is like tantamount to like discovering the cure for cancer. That's like yeah. you can you can make music with fucking anybody on yeah, the planet. Yeah, no, Earth. no one's out of uh, unavailable right today. Like we could know? we could scatter to the four corners of the earth, mm-hmm. and let's like when, do it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of down. Um, <laughs> like when wolves don't hibernate, by the way. Wolves uh, do not. They do not hibernate. hibernate. Even if they did, would a wolf that's on speed be able to sleep? No, Hell probably no. not. Right. I don't know. I hear it's the doubly com- alive. Then the come down from speed <laughs> is pretty good. The come down from speed isn't too uh, too draining. I think. And I think Speed you get a good Wolf nap. took a little puppy nap. <laughs> yeah, S- Speed Wolf took a tiny little puppy nap. Was anyway. was chasing dream cars, <laughs> <laughs> so that's really that's really cool. It's 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 kind of validating to hear that we're we're more or less on the right track. Like the day that 
the day that we finally figured it out and we successfully shared a demo across all four of our devices, that was like such a eureka moment for me. Yeah, it's insane. It's a big deal. It it is a very big deal. So you guys, you guys share the stuff back and forth on, on pro tools. Yep. And uh, does everybody in the band live in Colorado or new? So who, who lives where now? Uh, Reese is originally from Virginia, and he lives there. He's he's he, back in Virginia. <clears throat> yeah, he did live in Colorado for uh, quite a few years, and then he moved back, and now he's married, and uh, he's got roots there. He grew up there, so I, I think he'll he'll be there forever. How long have you guys been doing it long distance? <clears throat> um, I think he went back uh, like three or four years ago. And you've just been able to make it work? Yeah, yeah. I mean... We, we obviously it's way harder to do like one-off shows we can't really just last minute like jump on a bill or right. something but uh normally it's just he comes out a handful of days before tour we rehearse and get all of our shit together and go do it and then after tour's over he flies home so everybody oh, yeah. everybody's pretty him. much expected to show up and know their shit and be yeah yeah. Up. yeah yeah and he's on top of that like we've never had a problem with him not coming in prepared how do you guys now here's here's a question: How do you guys practice and prepare ahead of time? If you can only really get together and rehearse a couple of times before the tour or before the show, how do you guys? How it, how do the individual guys, including yourself, practice to get ready to come and rehearse for the tour? Uh, no different than you would just uh, brushing up on shit at home. You know, you basically do homework like. You just sit, sit down sit, with the recording. Sit there with the recording and just play along to it. Um, and then for me, just if I only had to play guitar, it'd be much easier. But because it's my voice is my instrument, um, I, I have to break that in a lot more than I have to break in my fingers and my picking hand. So I'll often go for drives and scream and yell my head off in my car because yeah, yeah. I can do it there without feeling like a total psychopath. Right. Um, if I just do it like in my townhouse, all my neighbors are probably think I'm murdering somebody. The and call car the is the way to go, dude. Yeah, it's like picking your nose in your car. Like people see you doing it, <laughs> but, but they it's ignore just like, it. Ah, I'm never gonna see you again. You yeah, know? exactly. So, so they see you screaming your face off in your car, and they're like, "This guy's a madman." But you're like, "I don't give a shit." So yeah, f- he's a madman, and he's gonna be out of my life in four seconds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not he lives right next door. <laughs> yeah, if you can get a dude, I, I think do, he murders people. Right yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do vocal warm ups while I'm driving all the time, but. Recently, what I've been doing is there's two really awesome apps. Uh, one of them's called Capo, and one of them's called Capo's great. Yeah, Capo's amazing, and the other one's the amazing slow down, slower downer. Slower downer. Yeah. yeah, and what you can do, the disadvantage Capo has is it's it's a subscription, a yearly subscription, and you can only use files that you own. Right. Okay. Whereas the amazing slower downer, you can upload a Spotify playlist. Sounds like a really shitty superhero. The the amazing slower downer. I'm going to rob this bank. Oh, no, you're not. He's not not like... Oh, no. (laughs) He's not like Quicksilver where he just moves real fast. He just slows things down just a little. Everybody put your (laughs) hands up in the air. Anyway, what does it do? (laughs) In that app, you can speed up or slow down music. Without changing the pitch. And without changing the pitch, which you can't do on a vinyl record... Or you can change the pitch up or down if you want okay. as well. Yeah, man. You I need can, to, you, you I can, need to get uh, that shit. You can transpose. And, 
And the, it, in, in the Capo app, the coolest thing is it will fucking break down the music and show you the fucking chords. Whoa. Yeah. So it, it, let's say you had to cover a song and it's tuned to like, uh, you know, G, but mm-hmm. you're, you want to play it in E. Mm-hmm. You, you take the, the the recording that's in G, drop it down three half steps, and then it will fucking show you the chord right. progressions. Well, right. That's and amazing. Whoa. Yeah. That now, now it's not gonna break it, yeah. it down to to tab for you or anything like that. But right. like, so it'll show you the basic format of the chords right. that are happening. In the so what music. I used it a lot for is the Oingo Boingo tribute. Yes, okay. dude, so, that's one of my favorite bands in the world. So we, I've been doing this Oingo Boingo tribute. Oh man, and it's really fucking hard. Yeah. And what's most hard is Danny Elfman's range is superhuman, like. Even so, we dropped it down a full step, and even with it dropped down a full step, there are screams and little falsetto things that he does that I still can't hit. But what I did, and and I really had to, because you know I've done the same thing with you guys before, mm-hmm. like with trying to get you guys to transpose things and, and be like and with covers and yeah, like, different like shit. it will sound better if it's in. You know, I have a deeper voice, mm-hmm. so and so since so many metal singers and so many rock singers in general tend to have higher pitched voices it's hard for me to do like like doing a Dio song is difficult for me in like like I can do I can do um, what's it called I can do uh, uh, Holy Diver no problem that's like right in my range but like something like Last in Line or like uh, God Mob Rules is kind of hard He's he's kind of he's a little bit up there for mob rules or like uh, kill the king is really really hard to do, um, you know I I it, it's easier to drop it down and it just kind of sits in the sweet spot, but with this Oingo Boingo stuff I had to talk the band into it and then our guitar player sent me over that Capo app and I can drive around, drop it down a whole step and sing, sing along to these right. songs and so the way I practice songs is singing in the car mm-hmm. to and. By the way, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, that Danny Elfman tuned down a full step just sounds like a drag queen. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like, I love little girls. It makes me feel so good. And actually, we don't, we don't even do that song. And um, we uh, Why don't you do that song? Dude, I, need, I need to fucking see this. A great dude, song. It's, it's fun, man. It's fun. And it's like just the the caliber of players that I'm playing with, you know, cause it's like, they have to be sick. Yeah, dude. It's all jazz guys. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, a three piece horn section, you know, uh, this dude, Chris Harris, who is one of the busiest, most accomplished bass players in the state. Just an amazing bass player. Um, Chad Amon from, uh, white fudge and mm-hmm. the heavy heavies. And he's God, he's played with a bunch of people. Do you um, guys do weird science? We do weird science, <laughs> and I hate doing that song because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really so, dumb song. But well, it's, it's, it's fun. not that it's a dumb song. I think it's a cool song. What's hard about it is the placement of everything, because it's long too. It's really long, and all the like ooze and yeah, the, he's the, got a lot of weird. high parts in there. Yeah. Well, but just like the placement of it, because if you mess up the placement. They, the, the thing that we would run into is these guys are reading charts and I'm singing by memory and feel and ear. And so I would totally miss cues and that throws the whole band off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it, like it'd be different if we were like a lot of these guys I've played with in like a jamming capacity doing like jazz festivals and stuff. But if you're doing an Oingo Boingo song, 
there's not really as much room for jamming because it, it, the, just the, the, the timings are, you've got to be really precise in your timings and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, I'm next, we're doing a show on um, the 26th of October, and if you're in town, you should come, man. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be a ton of fun. I should be home. I would love to come. Where, where's that show? Uh, it's at the Owl Saloon. We just, did, we just did one at the Oriental, and it was fucking awesome. We had, like, a guy mixing, uh, like, just weird, trippy, psychedelic visuals with 80s movies and, uh, like, you know, we, we had back to school up, you know, yeah, getting mixed with stuff. Yeah. So anyway, it was it's it's been a lot of fun. And Fuck yeah, I'd love to see that. It literally is one of my favorite bands ever. Dude, the uh, what I really wanted to do was the farewell concert in its entirety. Yeah. So years ago, when it was coming up on the 20th anniversary, it was it would have been 2015 would have been the would have been the 20th anniversary of the farewell concert. So I wanted to do the whole show on Halloween, and I just I couldn't find the musicians that that were right for it. You know, years go by, I end up doing shows with all these different jazz guys and stuff. And uh, Dave Flomberg, who um, used to be a writer for, I believe, The Post, and um, I think he wrote for Yellow Rake, too. And he, uh, he's, he's played with a bunch of bands. He's a really sick trombone player and just a, just a wonderful guy. Uh, he wrote that book. Um, oh God, he he wrote that book that's like computer programming for zombies or something like that. Like that's that's his book. Um, he came up to me uh, like six months ago and was like, "Hey, do you like Oingo Boingo?" And I said, "Fuck yes, I like Oingo Boingo." And he goes, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put together a band and I want you to sing for it." And I'm like, "Awesome, you're gonna do all the work. All I have to do is show up and <laughs> sing songs." You know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah, we did, we just did the Oriental and, um, you know, it wasn't crisp. It wasn't, I saw some of the videos from it. I thought it looked great. It, it was, it, I mean, it, and like, it looked really that good. That band needs to be on a bigger stage, like a big production like that. I saw you guys at the Owl Saloon the first time you played and it was a lot of fun and, but there are so many of you and so, Super so much instruments, so, so much instruments, <laughs> so you many, so much instrument, but. Yeah, it was fun, and the, like, wasted people in the Al Saloon were like, hey, right. dead man's party, you know? Right, and we can but, hear we can hear every fuck up, but they, they can't necessarily. Right, right. But so it, that's more of a party, but ha- seeing you guys on that stage was it pretty was a cool. Ton of Is fun. it nine people in the band, just like the original? Uh, no, because, well, maybe, no, because including Danny Elfman, three people played guitar. And then I want to say they probably had a four-piece horn section. I think they uh, added and switched some stuff around throughout the career. Yeah, and then they also just had clowns that would bang on drums and play accordions and all sorts of weird crap. We're not to that point yet, but eventually we are definitely going to have guys in clown costumes banging fuck, on drums. And fuck shit. yeah, dude. Yeah, man. I want to bang on some drums and some Oingo Boingo dude, songs. Dude, I will bring you up to bang on some drums. Fuck yeah. yeah I would man. love to. Uh, do you guys do Nasty Habits? Uh, we're going to. Oh! We're going to. Cool. We When we did the original set list, the guy who was writing the charts was like, we are not doing Nasty Habits at this first show oh, because be a pain it's going to take balls. me forever to chart it. Oh, yeah. So I think we're going to bring that one back. But so I was like, I was like, we definitely need to do little girls. Mm-hmm. And like our drummer has two Whoa. daughters. 
<laughs> we definitely, definitely need, need to do little girls. girls. Our uh, our drummer has two daughters, and and he's like, no, I don't want to do that song. <laughs> and then a few of the other guys in the band were like, I don't know, that song hasn't aged well. And I'm like, you guys are getting terrorized by a two percent of the population that are noisy cunts, like like people that are just yelling and going, that's not funny, that's not cool. Like you guys are getting bullied by internet bullies and afraid that we're going to get torn down for doing something like that. I'm telling you, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care. No, I don't think we should do it. I don't think we should do it. We go out on stage. The first thing that people started yelling for was little Little girls. girls. Yeah, they're like, play little girls. This lady right up front is like, play little girls. She asked for nasty habits too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We do, um, but we do, uh, uh, no one lives forever. Fuck yeah! Dead man's party, obviously. Um, we I close our eyes with the accordion. Um, God, uh, fool's paradise. Uh, uh, just another day. Like all, all the, all the big ones. No man. one lives forever is probably my favorite song that has one note in the bass line. It's the same note the whole time. And when those. When that uh, like next little hook part comes, it totally sounds like Rob Zombie to me. Which which little hook? Don't. Yeah, totally, dude. It's Rob like, Zombie, dude. Well, it, what's interesting <laughs> is you can hear, you can hear the beginnings of what would eventually become his orchestral compositions. For sure. Mm. You know, like you listen to like Nasty Habits or um, Helpless. Uh, what is it? Helpless, <clears throat> blind. It's it's like two songs in one. Like you listen to those songs and then listen to the actual you know Beetlejuice soundtrack or, or like their uh, their cover of "You Really Got Me." The I've mi- never heard that. Oh man, it's on the first record. It's on only a lad. They cover really? "You Really Got Me" and the whole middle bridge section is just like not a cover. It was orchestrated by Elfman, right? <clears throat> and probably Steve Bartek as well. Steve Bartek is the one who taught him how to arrange and and compose music, right? Wow. I don't I, know. I, I heard something like that. <clears throat> like, like Danny Elfman, you know, had this gift for writing music, but Steve Bartek was the one who was like helped helped encourage him to be a composer. Now I don't know that factually, but that was something that I heard. So I I, I understand that Elfman's brother was the dude. He started it in Boingo, and then he like wanted to do something else, and he was like, "Danny, you're gonna be the guy." Right. And uh, have you heard D- Elfman stuff that he made for like uh, Forbidden Zone before Boingo? Yeah, that shit's yeah. really good. Uh, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Yeah, that yeah, stuff. yeah. That was the band that performed the the soundtrack for that Forbidden Zone right. movie. Um, some of that scoring stuff is really cool. It's very Pee Wee Herman, Beetlejuice esque. Totally. And that was when, like, that was when they were more of, like, a performance art group. Yes. That also happened to be highly proficient in musical composition. Yeah, they weren't a full-fledged band, per se, yet. They weren't just, like, an, like, I, I think a lot of people kind of dismiss them as this, like, this this new wave 80s synth band. You know, but when, when I started listening to the Farewell concert and watching the Farewell concert video and just like seeing the the breadth of their influences and their and their acumen and in writing it dude it turned me on to like so much of their music yeah it's 
I, I'm really glad to know that you're an Oingo Boingo fan as well. Huge. There's only yeah. two I, bands I, in the world I would pay a bunch of money to go see. One is Mr. Bungle, the other one's Oingo Boingo. Are you going to go to any of the Mr. Bungles? I'm shows? absolutely going to go. Can you help Mr. Gordo Bungle. get tickets? So <laughs> fucking jealous. Yeah, it's going to be expensive, but. Dude, Gordo, you should just go. And just put your finger up, man. Just, just crash. Just put just your, crash the put your finger up and check StubHub, man. I can see if Mike Patton needs a cable like last time I saw him play. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, like, I rolled up. I was I was doing mushrooms with my buddies, and we rolled up to the Bottleneck in Lawrence, Kansas. They were on the California tour, and uh, we there's this huge U-Haul right in front of the club, and I was just like completely out of my mind and like there's this line down the block and i just walked like right to the front door like how are we gonna go in and see the band you know (laughs) and this u-haul the back was open and mike patton's the only thing in this u-haul he's it's just an empty u-haul and like they hauled him to the show and he's holding like he's holding one cable and just going fuck and it's like hey what's going on he's like we're a 48 channel live band and we don't have enough xlrs I was like, I have some at my house. I'm sure I just seemed like a fucking weirdo. <laughs> which in Lawrence, I was, Kansas. Which too. I was, yeah, in Lawrence, Kansas. And, um, you know, it was a very short conversation. He's like, no, I think we're okay. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you guys still stay in touch. And I was just like, well, I really like your band. Bye. <laughs> your pupils are way too big to be getting XLRs. <laughs> no, me. I'm not going to trust you to go anywhere and bring me anything. This, this guy's going to bring me back like an ear of corn and be like, here you go. <laughs> this is my XLR cable. You would have been lucky if I would have come back with an ear of corn. <laughs> as high as I was flying at that moment, yes. <laughs> that where, where is Mr. Bungle playing? Here. Uh, they're playing, uh, no, not here. They're playing oh, L.A. I thought they were playing here. L.A., San Francisco, New York. Yeah, I'm going to drive with my brother to L.A. They'll announce him. more shows. I, that's I exactly think, what they did with likely. Faith No More, man. They, yeah. they announced, what, the San Francisco show? And then everyone's like, Oh, I gotta get tickets! I gotta get tickets! And then when it sold out, they're like, "Here's the New York show. Here's the Red Rocks show." Like they, yeah. they kind of. It's like um, when Ween got back together, they just announced two uh, two shows at the First Bank Center, and the, those were the only shows that they announced. And their whole thing was like. Who knows if it'll happen again? You know, Diener and Jeaner are getting back together. You know, they might not ever do it again. And then they announced the third show. And then it's like, oh, now we're going to go play in Chicago. And now we're going to go play in New York. And now we're going to, and now they're like pretty much touring full time. They haven't even, they haven't even gone overseas at all. You know, they just like keep announcing. They've been, since they got back together, they've been back to Colorado like four times. Yeah. And they'll do that where they go. We're only doing this one show, maybe two, and, okay, three. And that's the original Ween. Part of the reason I, w- I want to go see Bungle in uh, L.A. is they're going to be playing their like early demo, and they're playing with Scott Ian playing guitar wow. and, and Dave Lombardo playing drums. That, that, that shit is fuck? brutal, dude. So that's why I want to go out there. That shit is so brutal. Have you heard the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny? It's fucking it, it, nuts. It's like it's thr- that thrash like- grindcore way before, like, all that shit got like real when big. they were teenagers. Yes, yeah, they were like Dave 16. Lombardo and Scott Ian were in the they, band. They, they weren't. Were... They weren't in it, but uh, they were S- fans. Sod, Anthrax, and Slayer were giant inspirations to the Bungle dudes, and I guess they got the guitar player, bass player, vocalists of Bungle are all cool now, and uh, they asked Scott Ian and Dave Lombardo to play that shit because it's fast and very fast and thrashy stuff. 
They were big influences. Right. So they asked them to do it. They said, yeah, and then they announced those shows. That's so cool, yeah, man. It's fucking awesome. So what? There was there was a rift between I assume Patton and everybody else, or uh, <laughs> from what I understand, it was a guitar player Trey and Patton like hadn't been speaking for a long time. Is that the guy from Secret Chiefs? Yes. Okay. But uh, Dead Cross and Secret Chiefs did, did a, a tour, tour together. together, and that's that had to be where they like mended that. Right. And that did you a, go to that show? That was a rad. I was tour. on tour. <laughs> I was, was so I was gone. Good. I'm really bummed. I missed. It was that. so good. Dude. I bet. Yeah, I heard. Cause I like. The thing is, is like, like I'll listen to anything Patton does. You know, he's a hero of mine. Like I've got, I've got probably my big five vocal influences, and Patton is is in the top three of those top, of those top five, just because of his inventiveness, and he's a baritone too, which is like it's like oh we're doing it. There's another guy like me, you know. <laughs> and, but just like as far as his his like his instrumentation of his voice. You know, he can it, make a lot of different sounds with it. He can. Yeah. And so I'll listen to anything he does. But Dead Cross wasn't my favorite thing that he did. You know, but the show was so fun because to me it seemed very playful in the way they were executing it. It definitely seemed like a passion project between him and Dave Lombardo and was one of the guys from the Locust, and then who Justin was Pearson. Justin Pearson from the Locust, and then who was the fourth guy? Dude from Retox. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And so it it just seemed like something that was very like fun for them, and like very top of the set. Um, it was like an old school Faith No More show or an old school Bungle show where like very first note, Patton just does a, a flip into the audience and he's cl- crowd surfing, just acting like a fucking maniac. And, Sweet <laughs> and. They did a lot of fun fuck around stuff. You know, they trolled the crowd a little bit. Like they, uh, they did this mashup where they start with the drum intro to Rain and Blood, and then they stop and go right into the chorus of Epic, and then they stopped, and then and Mike Patton goes, you know, times like this, I often ask myself. What would Gigi Allen do? And they played Suck My Ass It Smells by Gigi Allen. <laughs> and just like just like for them to subvert their own careers like that, it was that was really fun to me. Plus I got to see Secret Chiefs live and that was fucking amazing. Dude, they were yeah. fucking on fire. They that was, was so good. That was nuts. Yeah. Did, so we had Richie on the show. It's actually what inspired me to contact you is we had Richie on the show, and Richie was talking about Mike Patton's words exactly that night were, I need to find a tranny hooker to give this guy a birthday cake. Because it was <laughs> one of the guys in the band's birthday. Yeah. And so, like, Rich, like the showrunners had to help Mike Patton find an escort service yeah. that, that had, a, 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 you know, a, a trans, a trans working for him. And come in and give a birthday cake to one of the guys. It was really, really fun. Really, really funny. And why did that make you think of me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Just like, just, well, because we were talking about the old Havoc days. Yeah. We were talking about the original days of Havoc. And it got me thinking about how I was introduced to you. Okay. When, I, when you first came on my radar... It was when Logan. It was you can when, wipe it off. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the radar, sir. It appears to be <laughs> jammed. Um, it was when we were living at Bel Air One, okay. over off of uh, Evans and Bel Air, 
and I was working at the Fat Jacks over there, and we had built the little um, home recording studio out of carpet and cinder blocks down in mm-hmm. the basement, like where we were trapping mice and doing all manner of gross things. That was a very gross house. It was. Um, but uh, your mom contacted me, and she was doing uh, – because at that time she managed you guys, right? Yeah, in the very, very early days she it, helped it, us out a lot. Yeah. And your mom contacted me, called me on the phone, and she was – which was really smart of her and is, is, is kind of something that I wish I had thought of all the way back then – is your mom was going through the list of bands with any sort of relative notoriety in the local scene and was going through one by one and booking you guys with those bands. Yeah. And so I got a phone call from your mom trying to, and she goes, she goes, hey, I'm managing this band, Havoc. And at the time, I didn't know she was your mom. I just, you know, thought she was your manager. She goes, it's this young band. They're kind of new. They're called Havoc. And I would really like to put them on a show with you guys. And I think we ended up doing a show from it. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah. it was it was 100 years ago. So, I mean, who, I, I think we did a show at the Gothic or something like that. It was very, very long time ago, very early on. But I wanted to ask you about that. How, like, how much did those early days influence the trajectory of what you guys have grown to you know like what what like what was it that you guys were doing in the early days that has gotten you to where you guys are now because i've watched you guys go from seed to just like this giant fucking tree of a band you know what i mean yeah uh well way back in the day playing shows like that with other bands like really helped at least for me really helped uh like get get a concept of what it's like to even be in a band and play shows and hanging out with people and uh, stage banter and how to get your shit on the stage and off the stage really fast. Right. And you learn a lot of that kind of shit um, playing in the very beginning, just playing shows in general. But I, I think it helped us out a lot playing with bands like you guys and uh, uh, other bands that, you know, people dug in, in this town. Because then it wasn't just, uh, hey, we're playing in somebody's basement, and please come out to our show and bring your friend. Right. Um, it's like, you know, legitimately awesome bands that people want to go see, and to be able to be a part of that was uh, huge for us in the beginning. And um, and it rapidly <clears throat> expands your network, too. Exactly, It rapidly yes. expands your reach. Yes. You know, I, it, I, 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 almost every fucking show I go to, I know, like, ten people there, at least. Right. Um, and, and that's because of doing shit like like that back in the day. You know, it may, may be people that I don't see very often, but uh, it's people that I've probably played with or like seen at a hundred different shows, and um, it, it, that that stuff goes a long way because then you're not just like, yeah, I'm from here, but I don't know anybody here because we just started touring immediately. Um, we we cut our teeth here, right? And this is where where it all started. Uh, we, we got out on the road probably after being a band for two years or something. We started touring when I was 17. I started the band when I was 15. And, uh, you know, we... And, back and in, how old are you now, just just for context? My body is 31 years old. <laughs> my body is 31 years old. I have physically been on the planet for 31 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, touring in the very beginning, we would book our own tours and it basically hit kind of like uh, the way that we hooked up with you guys we would 
um, hit up bands that were kind of in our vein in other cities that we wanted to play and say, hey, we're trying to come to your town on this day. If you could help us book a show and even play with us, that would be better. But if you could help us book a show on that day when you guys come through Denver, we'll book you a show. And if we can play, we'll play as well and bring people out to the show. So we basically started touring like that, just trading shows with bands from other places. And you hear about that? You hear about that, that suggestion and that strategy? And it it is a gross oversimplification of the tedium that comes with that process. Oh, yeah. Because so many people don't get back to you. Sure. Or they don't take you seriously. Like, they, they... there was a lot of times where we would write bands, and I think that they they didn't see us as as their contemporaries, or they didn't see us as being legitimate parts of their scene. Did you guys run into that, or did you guys pretty early on find kinship with other bands you contacted? Well, a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. Right. Because um, I mean, metal's a little, I feel, and... and and I, I want to throw this at you, and you tell me if this has been your experience. I feel like there are certain genres that maybe they aren't they aren't easier to succeed in, but they are easier to establish yourself in because there's already a fan base around that certain type of music. There's already a tribe, a team around that type of music. And I would say that punk rock and and like true metal are the two primary ones like if you're a band like the potato pirates you know we had andrew williams in here uh, a couple weeks ago if you're a band like the potato pirates they have a built-in audience you know or you're a band like Speedwolf, there's a built-in audience for Speedwolf. there's a built-in audience for thrash metal like true thrash metal like you guys do was that your experience going into it or was it it was was it was it a hard upward climb for you guys to establish yourself in those circles? It's still an upward climb. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right that sometimes just based on the your band's vibe, like you might already have some people that are digging it immediately, but <clears throat> it's still an uphill battle even to this day. And Because uh, even if you are playing music that someone kind of digs, you still have to like prove to them why you're worth listening to over all the other bands that they already right. listen to. You still have to have like some sort of unique selling proposition, and it might be more challenging to like pull ahead of the pack a little bit. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There, there's there's so many factors too into like getting people. Um, the hardest thing is getting people out to your show. God, that's because so hard. there's a thousand different factors that go into the person being available, having money, having a ride there, get to having a babysitter, blah 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 blah. There's the or list goes on and on. Or even just being in the like, you can change, you can have tickets to a show, and change your mind about going out and yeah. just going. Ah, I'll just kiss the twenty bucks goodbye. Yeah, I'd rather it stay depends how you're feeling time. that night, what kind of mood you're in, if you just had right. a good day or a bad day, if you had work overtime. Like, getting someone to the shows is the hardest thing. Uh, I think one of the other really hard things is getting someone to actually listen to your band that's never heard of your band. Right. That's very challenging because in today's world, the, we're so saturated. Anybody um, that has a laptop and an interface f- uh, fit, can, has the ability to make a recording. Right. And put it out there on Spotify and YouTube and all this shit. And you can make a recording that is beyond your ability. For sure. Yeah, there, there's the technology is pretty insane now, and 
it's yielded uh, it's good and bad. But one of, one of the I guess drawbacks is that there is so much saturation. It's really hard to get people to pay attention to you because there's literally a thousand other bands in your town. Right. There's there's tons of bands that have. And I'm talking back in the MySpace days. Yeah. There were tons of bands that contacted us or that we contacted and that we would listen to and we'd be like, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, I didn't, I didn't get into Valiant Thor right away. You know what I mean? I'm like, I mean, I guess it's pretty cool. And then I saw a video of Valiant Thor at Warp Tour doing Tough Customer and just saw the way that Herbie worked the crowd. And then I saw Valiant Thor live, and I was like, this is one of my favorite bands for all time forever. But, like, there's something about the experience of just listening to a band. I don't know if it's always been this way. Like, I don't know if people were more blown away by stuff that they heard on their turntable because there was less noise around it. There's also that element of discovery of like just going through the racks and looking at records and being like, "Ooh, this looks cool," you right? Know? And like, you know, experiencing things that way and finding, finding things, things on that. your own. It's yeah. totally different these days. If, like, if somebody sends you something, you're probably going to listen to ten seconds of it. Yeah. Or if they send you a video, you know, especially in a booking capacity, having the experience of being in the office. Like, have you ever been in the office? Like, have you ever had a, an admin position in the music industry before? Mm, no. Being on the other end, on the booking end, like you are literally going through emails. I mean, I have to sift through a shitload of emails and do all kinds of stuff like that. So like, I guess, well, I, I mean, guess you're yeah. on the you're on the admin side for yeah. havoc. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, same and and same with ruckus too. Is like, like we'll get people that'll hit us up to do stuff, and it's just like there is not <clears> physically <throat> enough time for us to. I, I try to respond to everybody. Or, you know, but there's not always physical time to do that. There's not always a gracious way to tell someone that, like, hey, your band isn't a fit for us or we're not a fit for you or or we just, you know, we can't uh, we can't do your dog's fucking fundraiser party or something like that. You know what I mean? Like we're unavailable on that date. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're Sorry. already doing a cat fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like when I was when I was at uh, when I was at King's. I would have to go through emails, booking emails, and they straight up told me, they're like, don't respond to people you aren't going to book. Don't say no. They're like, because then you get caught in a whole chain and you have, then you have another email you got to do explaining it and you'll get into a whole conversation with someone. Right. And like, so if someone writes you and you don't think they're a fit, don't even write them back. And so I would be just sitting there watching little 10 second clips of YouTube videos that people sent me or listening to 10 second clips of, of band camp recordings and things like that. And uh, my boss at the time was like, that's more than I do. He's like, I don't, I don't even do that. I really only work with people I have a, an existing relationship with. That's why my band tries to keep every song under a minute, 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you guys do a great job of it too. I don't know about that, but we do it. <laughs> like, like, well, Gordo, you're a perfect case study because, and I'm not saying, and, and I'm not, and this is going to make you uncomfortable and I don't mean to like put you on the spot, oh, God. but I think, no, I think you're pretty brilliant. I think you're pretty brilliant. And I think you write some great songs. And I think that Granny Tweed has something that is truly unique. And but that works against us in a big way. Yeah. But the fact that 
you guys are not harvesting more opportunities than you are surprises me greatly. Like, especially because you guys not only have, you have a great chief songwriter in you, you have great musicians and all the guys in your band, but you also have killer aesthetics through everything Josh Finley draws for you. You know what I mean? And it, to me, looking at, at Granny Tweed, and I know how much work you put in and how frustrated you get by the return or lack of return sometimes, it's, it, it's to me, a perfect case study of, like, really how much of an uphill climb that it is. Oh, it's always been that way. Yeah. Yeah. So Never ends. On that point, well, yeah, and, and it never ends, and it ends up, it's just like, you just move. The first time we did what I would consider a professional tour in Europe, like we booked our own tour the first time we went out, and it was all anchored around one festival that really did a lot for us. The first tour that came as a result of that, remember we had a meeting before at the, on, at the very first show, and I said to you guys, I was like, this is the first rung of a new ladder. That's, that's all it is. It's like, we have not arrived. We just started climbing a new ladder now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you look at, you can see that literal ladder when you look at festival lineups. You can see bands, you know, across the years kind of climbing the ladder of those right. things. And it's, yeah. it's really interesting to see that. And you see some bands that are amazing, and they never get beyond the middle rungs of the ladder, you know, because there's always going to be someone who just by, I don't know, like infamy or or status or connections just like or just the gravity that they've created just controls those top rungs of the ladder. Sure. So what would you say has been have been some of the key strategic moves that Havoc has made over the years to get you guys to where you are? Um, I think probably obviously signing a record deal is a big thing because uh, this is so stupid, but uh, this is the way it is from what I understand is like most booking agents won't even look at your band unless you have a record deal. Right. Which is so fucking stupid. Right. Doesn't matter if you're the best band they ever heard. If you're if you don't have a fucking contract, they don't want to book your band. Nobody wants to take a risk on yeah. you. Yeah. Even, even if you're great, nobody wants to discover you. Right. No, it, it, it's really fucking gross to me. Because um, there's so many great bands out there that are that nobody's right. ever heard of. There's a ton of them. Um, but I, I think signing uh, a deal was a big thing, and then getting a booking agent to actually take us seriously and throw us on to an opening slot of a tour with some other band. Right. Like, th- those were the big things for us. And then, you know, that just snowballed into opening for other big bands and uh, eventually winding up going to Europe and doing those kinds of tours. And Which is a whole other game. Yeah, Which it, it's just it's crazy, and I've seen I've seen pictures of the stuff that you guys do over there, and like, even at our small level, because I mean we're we're at a pretty small level, uh, it, it, just just in in terms of the industry, you know. And uh, in fact, when we got when we got turned down by Phil Campbell, 
Yeah, I guess his exact words were, they do not have a relevant fan base, I guess is what he said. And Jesus. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he's right. He's right. In the grand scheme of things, we don't. But even at our level, being on a smaller yet pretty well-connected label just because in Europe they, they put so much more into the infrastructure of the industry, even at our level, things are so much, so much more uh, organized in the music business, and there's so much more opportunity even for a smaller band. You mean over there in Europe? Over there in Europe, yeah. yeah. Europe treats bands much better than anywhere else I've ever been. Yeah. Um, uh, but th- there's one thing I overlooked that I failed to mention that was like a big step towards getting to where we are is getting gigs opening for bands that are bigger than us in Denver. Right. You know, when you get asked to open for Testament or we got asked to open for Exodus or, you know, n- not Exodus, but bands like that, you know, mm-hmm. we'd get fucking the, the opportunity to open for bigger acts that was a huge thing before touring and before getting right. a record deal. That kind of stuff uh, is really good to add to you know your resume as a band, well, so to speak. We've t- we've talked about that. Um, Gordo introduced me to the term optics. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's good for your optics. The the optics of like like you look at someone like Joey Klontz, our fan numero uno. Mm-hmm. You know, he discovered us. When we opened for Steel Panther. Exactly. It's how people discover your band. Exactly. But because he saw us in that context, he saw us as being bigger than we saw ourselves. Uh, Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like when we did that Blue Oyster Cult show, you know, we had some of the best merch sales of our career and we're taking all these pictures of people and signing all this stuff because the people who didn't know that we were some, you know, Denver local band that's been slugging it out for you know twenty plus years, they they just saw us in that context, and there's the assumption that if you are in that environment, you must have qualified for that that context. And and you did, right? But but I understand what you're saying. They don't see the behind the curtain. They just saw you come right. out in the miraculous uh, outfit. Well, and I'm sure, and and I don't, and I'm sure, <laughs> you guys look spectacular. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, and you, and but you they, all, they don't see the hard work. They, they just see right, the, right. the the result of it. Well, and 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 I appreciate and I appreciate the 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 thought, and and it means a lot to hear you say that. And at the same time, I'm sure you understand as well as anyone in this room that you will never see yourself the way your fans see you. Well, that goes for anybody that's that whether they have fans or not, you're never going right. to see yourself the way other people see you. Right. So even when we have found ourselves in these phenomenal opportunities, I have always had that sort of imposter syndrome of like waiting to be found out <laughs> you know what i mean it's like oh man somehow they just needed a band and we just happened to be in the right position and oh dude yeah, once they very, hear us or once they similar to how i feel yeah when, when are we gonna get an opportunity to do anything yeah yeah it's yeah. like it's like i don't know how we snuck by but i'm gonna Every, hold on to it they're gonna ring the bell any minute <laughs> yeah i, I they're get, gonna pull the gong i get those same kind of nerves actually like every time uh that we're going on tour when we've had kind of a long break I'm always a little nervous, like, oh, man, is my voice going to hold up? Like, I haven't been screaming in some months. Oh, right, no. Right. 
right. then and then we get out there and you know we, we do our thing. It's it's what we do. Like it's in our fucking DNA at this point. And people but, respond. But I but I get that that same uh, uh, nervousness, the same like little anxiety. I'm, I, I deep down I know I'm p- probably good, but uh, I psych myself out a little right. bit and get that like you said imposter syndrome. Like, well, it's oh, like fuck, that- am I a hack? R- am I gonna go out there and blow it? Dude, totally right. And it's like, but then I start to think about it, and I'm like, how many legitimately bad bands have I seen? You know, and the truth is not that many. Like, or at least not as bad as they probably think they are. Sure, I've seen tons of bad bands just starting out, or like the Walmartians at Skatopia, where it's like, you know, they quit in the middle of one song, and they could barely play, you know, stuff like that. Like, like truly, and those are even bands that just haven't, like honed their craft yet but i have rarely seen a band that has worked their way to a a professional stage that legit sucks yeah for the most part pretty rare for the most part the bands that you see that suck are huge bands that phone it in or blow it in some way or use drugs and alcohol too much and and like fuck it up by their own commission. Sure. You know what I mean? But like we there was there was something that that I heard recently that was just like like J- Jimi Hendrix never got to see Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And when we do shows, I get that imposter's thing and I feel like I don't belong there and I feel like there's ah these songs, you know, I these th- these are rudimentary songs, you know, like all these bands that I worship and all these artists that I worship just would like that this is nothing compared to the stuff that they've they've created and then you walk off stage and you see the return and when we have played bigger shows like it, the the conversion rate that happens is staggering you know you get you don't get the whole crowd coming up to you afterwards but you get a lot of people who are truly grateful that they got to see your band play and they're truly into your stuff and they have stories about i saw you guys at club xyz or i i still have this album from when you guys were doing this stuff or or we run into people every once in a while who are like i listen to every episode of the podcast you know that makes my fucking day when i run into people who listen to the podcast that really i ran into two last week did you See, that's great, dude. I think it's great that you are becoming a character of notoriety on the show, too. Because we just it's needed odd. someone to run the twiddly knobs so that we didn't fuck up episodes anymore. Literally. Those aren't diddly knobs? <laughs> twid- twid- diddly, twiddly knobs. Well, it, it depends on oh, how I manipulate diddly. them. <laughs> it's a new ladder, man. Just a new it's rung on a, the, 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 the podcast, podcast ladder. You, you know uh, that, that imposter syndrome anxiety that you're talking about, though, it normally goes away like the instant the show starts. Right. Because right. then I'm like... I'm in my comfort zone. That's this is what I do. Like, right. This is what I've been doing yeah, it, for most of my life. It builds up until that like first song, first couple seconds, and yeah. then you're like, you got to get. The, I got this. You got to get the nerves out. Yeah, for sure. It, and it's a weird, stupid thing because like you know, in the back of your head, you're fucking good. Like, but uh, it, it's it's some weird thing. Like right. when you got to knock the cobwebs off of your singing voice, like it's a little. Uh, 
intimidating. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's vulnerable as all. Yeah, you're, you're very vulnerable because you, you haven't like been flexing the, the muscle, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, right. it's just like a muscle. Your voice is it, it'll atrophy if you don't use it for a while. Th- there's another aspect to it, too, that I don't think we keep in mind. And I, I have started keeping in mind over the last last several years is really considering the audience's experience mm-hmm. and really considering their desired outcomes and that's why you give them all free stuff yeah no, yeah I'm yeah, just yeah. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the uh the the thing that that i've thought of and and that kind of occurred to me while we were having this discussion is you know with all of their problems societies generally function pretty well the fact that we're not running around in the streets throwing poop at each other and the fact that we can go stand in a room together with a bunch of strangers and not kill or maim each other or or hide from each other or or that it breaks out into total chaos that is evidence that that society for the most part functions right we have learned the rules yeah we have we have all kind of agreed on some basic constructs of of society and can all exist in the same yeah, room. Yeah, most people are not outrageously dickheady. Right, most people. Yes. But when you go to a show, there is still that part of you that is getting into show mode and adjusting and there's still that part of you that is uncomfortable and the guys up on stage are strangers and it feels a little weird to just stare up at a stranger and you might feel uncomfortable and you're like oh am i staring at this person in the audience too long am i standing right what do i do with my hands like see this my clothes feel uncomfortable you know like this is what happens when you smoke too much marijuana kids (laughs) (laughs) you're exactly right about that yeah yeah. like the the audience also has nerves that they need to break past they also have mental barriers that they need to get past. That is literally what happens to me when I smoke too much marijuana. Absolutely. Where yeah. should my hands like, be? No. It oh. happens to me when I smoke marijuana. Like, it's more intense. But it happens to me just going to regular shows, too. Like, walking into a room, especially since I stopped drinking, man. Mm. It's like it takes me a little while to feel comfortable. And, like, like if you run into someone... It's like, how long should the conversation last? How much should I talk? How many things should I say? Should I ask them questions? Do they have things to do? Am I talking too much? Are they talking too much? Should I just turn around? Okay, um, bye. You know, like, <laughs> like the audience is having, the audience is a collection of, of individuals having their own experience as well. So when you're up on stage, especially if you're an opening band or a band that they don't have a pre-existing relationship with, they're not going to feel comfortable walking up to the stage because they would be ex- they would be exposing themselves. They would be making themselves vulnerable to attack from like a, a, a limbic system perspective. So what I have started doing is really making it a point to right from the get-go trying to break the ice with the audience, trying to go down and make physical contact with them go down and make eye contact with them, talk to them, address them as individuals, pick certain people out in the audience that I might know and be, you know, wave at them, let them know it's cool, you know, bring them into the fold instead instead of doing the like, what the fuck, pussies, get up here. What the fuck, dude. Yeah, that, that puts them on the spot. <laughs> that puts them on the spot. They nobody don't like that. wants to be that guy that all of a sudden comes up to the stage because 
they got called out for not being at sure. the front. You know? Yeah, unless you're at a hardcore show and some lunatic wants to be the first person to go up to the front of the stage and kick somebody in the face. One of the last shows we did, I, I said, it's okay, we have no personal boundaries. You can just come right, <laughs> come right up here. Yeah, yeah. Come right up here. Uh, uh, it's almost equally... Um, it's almost equally awkward when you see the band that is do, doesn't pick up on the vibe of the audience and like the singer will go into the into the crowd at a quiet night at a bar and like start getting right up in people's faces oh, just yeah. right out the gate. Yeah. It's like, dude, that's too much. I don't want him right. to get in my face. Like I'm enjoying the band, but it's like fucking trying to catch a goldfish with a fucking harpoon. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, you, like, you brought the wrong tool, bro. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're sitting there and and like some guy just starts getting up in your face and screaming and you're like, "Do I smile? Do I yeah. Look away, I hope he moves on to someone you know, else. But, but some some bands and artists and stuff would like that, do the Andy Kaufman thing and like really make people uncomfortable and that's right. where they're getting their kick and right out of it, you know? So you um you mentioned the importance of of the contract, you know, and, and, and we talked a little bit about the optics of, of the contract and the optics of getting signed. What was what was the first deal that you guys signed? We signed with Candlelight Records in 2008, I, I believe, and our first record came out in 2009. We never put out a full record until we had a deal because I had always said, like, I'll record a bunch of songs when somebody else is fronting us the money to do it. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, our first deal was signed in, like, 08, I believe. Um, I was, like, 20 years old. God, that's crazy, man. We, like, we had... I would say before Rodeo Star, the only quote-unquote deal that we had was we had that 50-50 deal with 1332 where we would pay for half and he would pay for half, mm -hmm. and then he would he would handle all the distribution. And it, I mean, it That's was, not a bad deal. I mean, it's not a bad deal, but, I mean, it's also, you know, love Levi to death, but, you know, he's, he's an independent label in, in Boise and – and and he does great work for people and whatnot, but it's not like he doesn't have a roster that he's sending us on tour with. Sure, you know. Yeah, what I mean? and and that didn't really happen with us with our label either. It was uh, hooking up with agents that fucking like tried to carve us out a little fucking spot on a bill. That so how did you guys? How did you guys go? How did you guys access the agents? How did you guys get? Because I know that is like a big abstract concept Ab after so after we got the uh, record deal we went out on tour booked it ourselves with another band called hatchet and then uh we eventually started talk <clears throat> talking to agents we we got some emails from that we heard from other bands and hit up our label and you know management and stuff we were trying to figure out who the fuck can we get to book us and we hit a bunch of them up and you know one of them hit us back and said yeah i'll take you and threw us on a couple of tours and that helped us a lot but uh you know we were talking about the the record deal and uh one thing i'd like to dispel for everybody is like we got the record deal and we i always said we weren't gonna do a full length until somebody else was paying for it well we paid for it they just give you the money and then pull that exact back. amount of money out of your mm -hmm. royalty checks. Right. So they're literally just a bank that doesn't charge interest. Anytime a label is giving you money, it's not fucking 
money that they're giving you. No, it's, giving, a bad, it's a bad bank loan. They're giving you your own money and just saying, like, pay it off whenever. We're not going to charge interest. Right. And that's and that's but it's coming out of the band's pocket anyway. Right. It's a crazy it's a crazy scheme that they they figured <laughs> out a long time ago and it's pretty gangster. It's it's like a it's like a pimp and whore relationship. The band is the whore. The band has to go get on their knees and suck the dick and the pimp, the label gets to make all the fucking money while the the band got went out there and did all the dirty work. Right. It's pretty insane. Um I, <clears throat> the way things are nowadays with the internet, I don't think it's gonna uh, be a, such a thing for very much longer because it's already massively changed. And the it, only thing they're, that the they're labels, like dinosaurs, right? At totally. This point. They're they're mm, totally. they're starting to go away, and uh, even even the labels that do still exist, they've all gotten bought up by major labels. Right. So like uh, a label like Sony or. Um, whatever they they own like all these other in what used to be indie right. labels they still technically are independent labels, but they're owned by a giant. It's co- the same thing company. in Europe too. Like yes. in, in in Europe you have like uh, oh what's um what's the it's, it's like Steam Hammer um is that what it is? There's like like Steam Hammer like and um oh like Soul Food. Um, distro, like there's there's all these like parent distribution labels, and then just tons of like smaller labels that have have like independent contractor relationships with them. Right. So then those like smaller labels, they they take care of all the bands on their roster, but then they distribute through the 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 bigger like parent labels and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, and and it's like it seems to me the the, what the label, all that the labels really have in terms of advantages over you now is they have a Rolodex of contacts. Yes. And they have the money to, they might have the money to give you to do what you want to do on the front end. Right. No different than an investor. Right. A private investor. It, it, exactly. Like, like right now. We don't have the money to do things that the way the way that we want to do it. Like we essentially have our Patreon budget, and our Patreon budget allows us to it allows us to do quite a bit, but it 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 takes a long time because it's just a small amount of money, right? Yeah. Now, if a big investor or a label came in and just like dumped all this money with us, we would be able to do a ton of it, but then they would be entitled to, you know, the money back. Plus and, that, and then some, and yeah. then and then a lot, some. right? So, I think I think you're right that we're seeing a lot of the the labels are losing, they're losing their grip with the ability for bands to be able to do things like pledge music or Kickstarter or Indiegogo or Patreon, or even just record their stuff at home, distribute it on their own, make their own music videos, make all their own content. Like our our label does a lot for us, but in terms of financial investment, they keep it to a minimum. Yeah, and they have to, and they that's because to. of the way things are nowadays. They're not going to see a ton of return on it. Exactly, and uh, you know that's a big risk. It, even to say like, hey, here's ten thousand dollars to go do some 
shit, right. buy a vehicle and buy a new backdrop and go on tour, that's a big risk that they're taking. Right. That Especially they, they if they've might not got get that money back. bands on their roster. They might not ever see that money again. In fact, they so, probably mm-hmm. won't. Right. Labels are being more and more uh, frugal. And uh, like I said, they're getting usurped by bigger and bigger companies all the time. So what we're going to see is like a monopolization of all of these labels. Eventually, there's going to be like two labels that own everything. Right. There's going to uh, be like the century link of music. <laughs> yeah. Of record labels. Yeah. R- r- legitimately, it's going to be uh, it'll be really interesting where the, the, where the industry is going to be in like 20 years. So speak, speaking of your... Uh, your stance on the labels, and you can shut this down if you want to. Oh shit! But you gotta tell me about the Mustaine shit. Oh yeah, you uh, you, you gotta tell me about it because all I saw was the posts that went up. All I saw was you you talking about it. We talked about it a little bit with Richie, and I had said I wanted to get you on the show and really wanted to to get your side of the story and pick your brain about it. So for those who don't know. You know, run down kind of the situation yeah, yeah, you sure. with that. Um, so we did a tour with Megadeth. Um, we were being managed by Dave Mustaine's son, Justice Mustaine. Um, he was managing us for a little while. We did a tour with Megadeth, Children of Bodom, Suicidal Tendencies, Megadeth. Havoc was the opener. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that in the U.S. and Canada. And then later, um, the next summer, we did like seven shows in Europe with Megadeth where we were direct support. It was just Megadeth and Havoc. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, it was cool as fuck. Um, And then we were slated to be on another Megadeth run in the U.S. and Canada the next year, and that was Megadeth, Amonomarth, Suicidal Tendencies, Metal Church, and Havoc. Um, and, And the advertising material had already gone out. The whole world had seen that we were going to be on this tour. That's a heavy hitting tour right there. Yeah, it's pretty stacked up. Yeah. Um, but the the whole world had seen the announcement. We were people were planning on coming to see us, and uh, you know it got basically we were given a management contract from Mustaine Management that essentially said that they'll work for us for three years, and for the next ten years we still owe them money after the contract is over. Uh, what they call a sunset clause. You know, the the contract is valid for three years. For five years after that, you owe them a smaller percentage of what they were originally getting. And then for the five years after that, you still owe them more. But So if you move on to another management company, you still got to pay your other you management company. You still got to pay company. the old one, yes. So it's like... like It's like getting divorced and having to pay like, for your old it's wife. It's like crashing your car. It's like if your van gets T-boned and gets totaled and you still have to pay the loan for the van even though you've exactly. got a new car that you've got to pay the loan That's on. exactly what it was like. So they call it a sunset clause. It's an old uh, contract term. But um, we basically like had to go back and forth with our lawyer a little bit and uh, you know essentially figured out the, the things we wanted to tweak in the contract, sent it back over. Essentially, they said, like, no, you guys took too long to do this. Um, so you guys are either going to sign this contract or you're kicked off of the Megadeth tour. We were like, well, we're not signing that contract. So we got booted from the Megadeth tour. They tried They tried to They tried to strong arm. Yeah, you. yeah, and we weren't having it. So, Which, um, by the way, when all of this was going on, like, I watched this all go down, and I was quietly to myself commending you for the fucking balls 
it took for you to stand up for yourself and your shit. Man. Yeah, the the thing that's, I guess, the like most ballsy part of the whole thing was instead of just like saying, hey, guys, we're not on the tour, we told people why because we didn't want to just say, hey, I know you saw we're going out with Megadeth and Amon Amarth and Suicidal and Metal Church. But we're not but, now. But we're not now and just sorry. Mm. Right. Like, we didn't want to do that. We wanted people to have a reason so we wouldn't get a billion questions. Right. Nobody, yeah. nobody is going to defend you for you. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Nobody is going. Like, it's like, it's like you think about, like, if you left anything unresolved at the end of your life, there is no one at your funeral who is going to know exactly what your perspective was, exactly what your thoughts were. For sure. Exactly that's why what your we, side of that's the story why, was. That's why we offered up a little bit of information with the announcement that we weren't going to be on the the tour. We didn't fucking divulge gory details or anything. We just said due to a contract dispute, we are not going to be a part of this tour. Sorry to everybody that was planning on coming out to see us on right. this run. Uh, we'll be back on the road again soon or whatever. And then it turned into you know, that's a pretty cordial way to let our fans know we're not on the tour. It was some business dealings. It's very diplomatic. That's very diplomatic. Yeah, we tried to be very diplomatic because we're not trying to shit on Megadeth. We fucking love that band. Right. Uh, all the bands. And like, you had a huge opportunity out of it, and you were you were yeah we're we're yeah. very grateful for the things we got out of it. But like the the deal that we were offered was not gonna fly, um, and we just wanted to tell people in advance, hey, it was because of this. You're not gonna see us. Sorry, we'll see you guys again soon. And after that, it uh, turned into the the Mustaine camp going kind of nuts and just, like, trashing us, calling us liars, saying, like, uh, all, all kinds of uh, pretty... Uh, pretty harsh stuff. Pretty harsh stuff. Uh, yeah, and so... They came um, after you guys for basically saying, no, sorry, we're not going to sign this. Yeah, and, and we're calling us liars and saying, like, uh, we we never said it, sent well, any contracts Well, because, because like from that. their perspective, it's like they're airing dirty laundry. You know what I mean? Right, um, yeah, it right. looked like we were being dicks, I guess, but we were trying to be very cordial about it. Well, there's this, there's this, me, there's but, this, you know. there's this fear, like, what they were counting on is bands like us, you know, and 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 I would consider you guys much further up the ladder than we much, much further up the ladder than we are. But bands like us at our at our level of our like at our point in our career and our our level of, of notoriety or or who are trying to build a career and are trying to do something. They are counting on someone going like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat yeah. and miss the opportunity. You of know, course, yeah. I don't want to pee in the wrong green room or we might get kicked off the show. They say jump. You say how high. Is exactly. What I think they were counting on. That's why, you know. But you knew your value. You right. knew your value and you knew that you knew that the contract wasn't right. It was an old school contract. Dude, it was a contract. Years some, is someone would have time. someone would have signed that in 1975. Dude, 10 years is an entire career for some. Uh, for bands. sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, that shit all Gordo's went... Gordo's shaking his head in the booth, by the th way. That, that shit all, <laughs> all went down, and, uh, you know, they tried to tell us... They, they told the world that we were lying, that we were just making shit up, and I was like, all right, well, y you played that hand, right. so I'm going to go ahead and show everybody the contract to prove that I'm not lying, because right. that's a pretty 
that's a pretty fucked up slanderous statement right to say to the whole world that guy's a lying piece of shit right and i was and like he's oh. got he's got more clout than you do yeah yeah exactly so i i kind of like you know sat back cracked my knuckles and was like all right well the whole world's going to see that I'm not making this up. The ironic we, thing we is... We dropped the contract, everybody saw the whole thing, and then it just turned into a giant shitstorm. But uh, I don't think we did anything wrong. I don't um, think you did anything wrong. Uh, you know, a lot and of people... And the results speak for themselves. Yeah, we got a bunch of free press out of it. Who gives like, a fuck? Like, and, and here's the thing. We already did two Megadeth tours, so I... If that would have been our first opportunity ever to tour with that band, I would have been fucking crushed. That would have yeah. fucking sucked. But we already did it twice, so I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. The third Megadeth tour, like, fucking blow me. We're not going to pay you money for 13 years. 13 fucking years paying a manager yeah, that's no. not even working for that's you for 10 of them? For, that's that's, that's, that's insanity. Even, that, that you're paying him for three times. Yes, you're I mean, paying that, him for that more could than potentially break up your band. Just the finances. Uh, potentially, that's like a definitely, yeah. dude. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think we, we I don't think I'm the only one in this get. room. I don't think I'm the only one listening to this podcast who would have played ball. You know what I mean? Like, dude, seriously, kudos to you for like, like saying no. This is fucked up because I could see us having a meeting. And I could see Ty being like, this is a shitty deal. This is a mm -hmm. bad deal. And me being like, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, man. This is touring with Megadeth in the fucking States and Canada, And, and maybe that would have been us if it had been the first Megadeth tour. Right. But because we had already done it in Europe and in North America, it made it very easy for us to say, like, this is bullshit. Fuck this. Right. Um. And, you know, it's not something we wanted to happen. It was very unfortunate. No. The whole thing sucked. Um, it's uh, it's but, not fun to but, get in those situations. But, but it's not it, fun to get no, in a mudslinging match with not, anyone. Not at all. And, and, you know, but you had, a duty to, to, you had a duty to defend your name. Mm -hmm. You had a duty to stand up for yourself. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I the way I looked at it was like, dude, I have not been fucking building this thing up for this long just to have some motherfucker... Snake all of everything the I've worked for. Yeah, all of it. Absolutely, because yeah. you've been uh, the you've been the driving force behind this this whole thing. And like even back when, like in the early early days, when you're 15 and your mom's helping you out, she was she was helping you in your vision, right? Yeah, like she was. She helped us buy our very first Havoc T-shirts. Right. <laughs> like she's. It was like my birthday present. Like, hey, now your band has merch. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, dude. I, I none of none of this would have ever happened without my mom. She's like That's a cool birthday present. She's that the, is such a, a cool. cool she 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 let yeah. fucking bandmates sl stay at our fucking house uh, and live with us for fucking years and like let us rehearse in the basement and right. helped us buy a PA system because like, she wanted to see the thing that you believed in come come to fruition. Yeah, I I and dude, and it, you've I owe I owe everything to her really cuz um I mean I told my parents when I was like 15, "Hey, I'm not going to go to college." And they were like, "Uh okay, that's fine, but what are you going to do?" And I was like, "I'm going to play in a band and go on tour." And they were like, "That's fine. Just do it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I really took that uh to heart and and I busted my ass and they've helped along the way and uh you know, that's I, I, I'm doing I do now what I what I said I wanted to do right way back then. 
Right. And and it wasn't like easy. Nothing was ever handed to us on a silver no, platter. No, I've, I've watched you guys work your asses off for 20 years, man. Yeah, there I mean there was some fucking years where we played like 220 shows in a year. Like fucking insane shit. Worked your ass off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um but yeah, I, I owe so much to my family, my my brother, my mom, my dad. My brother used to fill in for us on drums all the time. He's gone on tour doing merch, driving like Right. He, he's uh, He's been a big integral part of our success as well. Well, and to have someone to have someone who thinks that they can they can leverage their their clout against your sweat equity. It's just it's very satisfying to watch the way that you responded to it and the way that you handed handled it. And I think for those of us who have been slugging it out for a long time, it's like it's seriously watching David beat Goliath, you know. And the thing that was most impressive to me was like watching all of it go down and then see that it did not adversely affect your career in in a way that I have observed. No, it, it, it I, hasn't I slowed slowed I, you guys down. I lost a string endorsement over it, and a lot of people have asked me about. This, that, and the other, uh, you know, relating to that fucking whole debacle. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's it just got us a bunch of free press and, uh, you know, just basically let everybody else. I, I was joking after uh, all this shit went down with my other bandmates. I was like, hey, guys, good news is I don't think anybody's going to ever offer us a fucked up contract <laughs> ever again. <laughs> Because yeah, look right. at all the fucking uh, shit that we ha- yeah, you know, right. put up uh, on the internet because of it. So, uh, you know, it, it happened. Uh, I, I still love Megadeth. I still uh, think the Mustaines are good people. Um, I have no hard feelings whatsoever. And um, But it was just it was a bad deal. Just a bad, it was just business. It had nothing to do with personalities. Um, it was business that got a little ugly and a little public. It got a little personal. Um, and that's, you know, I guess what escalated it. I but, think it's cool that you can didn't say start you got that no way. hard feelings for the Mustangs, oh, too. Oh, n- yeah, really zero, cool. man. Still still love the band. Still would hang out and be totally uh, cool if they ever cross paths with me. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you were asking about... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my fucking train of thought. That's okay. I'm a little flustered. I got to pee really bad. Okay, mm-hmm. let's take a break. Can uh, I pee? Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. take a quick break, and then uh, when was... we come back, we'll uh, we'll pick up where we left off. All right, cool. Yeah. Goddamn podcast oh, is ruined. Go. Logan ruined it again. The whole thing. The mm. whole thing is fucking ruined. The whole reason I'm here. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to point out that Oingo Boingo's Little Girls uh, has been streamed over three million times and is in the top five on the Spotify is it? playlist it's of, a their, great of, of their most popular song. I, it's I, a great so song. So that kind of makes the point for you right there. I have a funny story about that song. So my uncle lives in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he plays in the symphony orchestra up there. Tell and you. every once in a while they go out and like do karaoke and shit. And he was out at karaoke 
and he did Little Girls by Oingo Boingo, he said this lady got so fucking pissed at him. She came up on the stage and fucking dumped her drink all over his head because he was singing Little Girls. Whoa. <laughs> Dude. Because so- she didn't know, Holy like, shit. that it was a song. She's just hearing this, this, this really perverted man. shit. Yeah. Yeah. She got Dude, real offended and like threw what, her drink at his head. What I told to my ba- what I told my <laughs> bandmates is I was like, you don't listen to Aqualung by Jethro Tull, and assume that it's Ian Anderson just being like, these are my opinions about children. Sure. Like this this is how I feel. You don't listen to Dead Kennedys songs, and assume that the perspective the Jello Biafra is singing from is his own. Right. Like it's like. If you're playing a character in a film, it's like, that's a character that you're playing. Yeah, like Bob Marley didn't shoot the sheriff. Yeah, no. Bob Marley did most certainly did not shoot the sheriff. Right. And, and He should have shot Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't Sorry. know, man. Like, I am skeptical right off the bat for anyone who gets offended enough to the point that they need to make a big deal about it. In any way, whether it be dumping a glass on someone's head or assaulting someone or putting them on blast on the Internet. Like, if you are becoming a crusader against language, I immediately am suspicious of you because there's something. good reason. Dude, there is something that is disingenuous about that. There is something that is suspicious about someone who cannot engage in civil discourse over even the most sensitive issues without emotionalizing it. Like, especially with, like, real hot-button issues, it's like we need civil discourse more than ever when it is a super hot-button, extremely controversial idea. And those ideas wouldn't be controversial if people didn't get so... If you could talk about it. (laughs) If you didn't get so fucking emotionally plugged into it, man. And I... I don't know if that's just a skill that people haven't learned or if it, what I suspect is more likely the case is there is tremendous secondary gain from putting yourself at the cent, like, like at the, like spearheading a, um, a fight. Like there, it like even when you watch like the social credit is the through social the cr- roof, dude, bro. Seriously, you see how virtuous this guy is? <laughs> oh my god, exactly. he got offended by that joke. Yeah, I know, man. It's like it's it's like if you don't like the joke, just don't laugh at the fucking joke. If you don't think the joke is funny, like there's a wow. bunch of there's a That's bunch a of revolutionary idea I know. right there, dude. There are so many people who are like <laughs> who are. Like, feel the need to critique Dave Chappelle's new special. It was amazing. It was so good. It was perfect. It was so good, and it was so funny. And the reason that people laughed as much as they did is because laughter is a response. It's a physical response. It's like an allergy, almost. It's like when information enters your brain, and that information rubs against your belief systems and your value structures, and and when it, like... It's like, it's like a tuning fork vibrating with a string. You know what I mean? It touches on something that you know to be true in some way, but you're not supposed to admit out loud that is true. Sure. And all his stuff about cancel and call out culture and all his, that, dude, 
there were so many great things in that episode, and I felt like he, even if it was something that I don't hold to be true in my own uh, map of reality, the things that he said were obviously so much his truth and that he had given so much thought to him that they just, like, it, it, it was just such a pure, beautiful piece of comedy, man. Also, it was so good. Also, some of those things, he's probably, he doesn't even believe himself. He's literally just, get, he's making money trying to make a room full of people laugh. Right. That's his job. Yeah, he, so when you get offended by a comedian, it's... You you're know, doing like, exactly you, what he wants you to do. Are you forgetting that he's on stage right now to joke right. with people? And, well, and nothing's funny without any sort of risk. Well, are you if, forgetting who mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle is? Exactly. <laughs> right. I, I love that he called that out, too, in the special. He looks right in the camera. Yeah. He's like, if you yeah. if you get mad at anything I say, remember, you, you clicked, clicked on, on my face, face bitch. bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard oh, a lot man, of people it's saying so good. it's great. Yeah, yeah. You, you'll love it. I uh, and and I might be putting myself in in front of the firing squad here by saying this. Oh no! But I loved when he uh, stood up for Louis C.K. Yeah, of course. I thought that that was fucking great, dude. People were fucking uh, pitching Louis onto the same boat as fucking Bill uh, Cosby. Bill Cosby, what the fuck? Are yeah, you man, smoking crack. I mean, those and, are two completely different things. Well, and it's like if you even if you even suggest, what are the facts here in this situation? Like if like if you even if you even try and do if you even go up to anyone and go, well, hold on a second, what are the actual facts in this case? Right. Then it's like. You're defending a rapist. It's like, well, no, no he's he's not. The, the 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 comparison that people made, you know, Louie in the same boat as Cosby, yeah. is like saying this guy took a penny from the take a penny leave a penny tray at 7-Eleven and right. he's exactly the same as uh, you know, some fucking bank robber that right. murdered a bunch of people and stole millions. Right. They're the same thing. It's, it, like, it, it, this this one actually he did the thing that everyone agrees is okay to do, and he had permission to do. Right, right, right. This other guy is a fucking psychopath. Right, right, right. And it's just, I thought, especially when we're living in an age where people are so afraid to disagree and engage in discourse because they're afraid of getting piled on by fucking loudmouth internet internet cocksuckers man like you said it right when you said internet internets yeah like assuming assuming that the most vocal people on the internet are the voice for the rest of us is one of the greatest fallacies that that is out there right now absolutely like because when you turn off your phone and turn off your computer and you have conversations with regular people sitting right in front of you like even people even my like I had a I had a discussion with uh, uh, our head of HR at work, and I happened to be mentioning to someone that I was listening to an episode of of Joe Rogan with um oh with uh, Pendulet. There was an episode of with yeah. Pendulet. Yeah, I heard. And I don't listen and and uh, our head of HR who is you know uh, at Fire on the Mountain. Go figure at the at the Deadhead Fish Place uh, Fish Wing Place. Everybody's pretty far left leaning, right? But, Amazing, you know, fish she wing place? The, the fish wing place. Uh, uh, the fish wing. But the fish wing. But place. she, she heard me talking about, it and she goes, 
So do you like that show? Because my husband listens to it, and, and he loves it, and he thinks it's great. And I don't know, Joe Rogan just kind of rubs me the wrong way, and da 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 And we had a discussion about, like, the things that I like, the things that I don't like. You know, I'm like, I don't listen to every episode. But, um, you know, when he has an interesting guest, you know, if he has, you know, someone like Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson or uh, Steven Pinker or Jonathan Haidt or, you know, any of the, like, uh, the anthropologists that he brings on or, yeah. you know, the Travis Barker episode was really great. The Billy Corgan episode was really great. The Pendulette episode was really great. I was like, I think it's interesting that he can sit down with literally anyone and just have a discussion with them without it going off the rails and without an agenda. You know, so many journalists have an agenda and and when you listen, and I'm like, and then I made the comment, I was like, he even did an episode where he talked with Steven Crowder. You know what I mean? And sitting down and having a conversation with that guy, automatically people freak out and they go, oh, you alt-right sympathizer and blah, blah, blah. Or he has a conversation with Ben Shapiro and people fucking shit their pants about yeah. it. And it's like, dude, he's having a conversation with the guy. And I'm explaining this to her and she kind of like cringed at the name Steven Crowder, you know, and it's like, it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm curious about people. Yeah. I'm curious as a member of human, the human species in this age that How we live in. How dare you? There's no room for curiosity. Dude, yeah. I am. That's I'm, what I was thinking. I would listen to an episode if he was interviewing, uh, what's his name? Steve Bannon. Or, or, dude, if he interviewed Donald Trump. You can guarantee that seventy-five percent of the country would listen to that episode. Yes. I would definitely, hundred percent, definitely listen, to that. dude. Yeah. And and like, I'd, I would sit down and I would be riveted the entire time when he had Alex Jones on. How many people listened to the Alex Jones episode and then also criticized it? Right. You know what I mean? I I can't believe Joe Rogan would have Alex Jones on. It's like, man, love him or hate him, he is one of the voices of this age. He is he is one of the perspectives in this age. Like, like I heard um, I heard Sam Harris uh, and Steven Pinker having a debate, and they were jokingly talking about how Nietzsche was probably a psychopath. Like, said a lot of really great, a lot of really insightful, a lot of really intelligent things, but with the nihilistic viewpoint that Nietzsche had a lot of the times. In fact, I think Sam Harris even made the comparison. He was like, Nietzsche probably would have been on 4chan and would have probably been, you know, he, he would have fit the profile of someone who could be like a school shooter. Right. Like he's he was just that type of person because of his disdain for humanity. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And yet you go to college and you learn about Nietzsche, you know. Like, we learn about Socrates, and it has been described by some people that Socrates was probably the Alex Jones of his time. You know, he was this— Questioning everything. He was questioning everything, and he was this very loud, abrasive, contrarian voice of his time. Like, he was very—Socrates uh, was very um, outspoken against the printed word or the written word. Like— like Socrates thought that people writing down their ideas was going to be like the death of thinking. You know what I mean? He was he was a contrarian voice of his time. And I want to know what all of the big thinkers of our time 
you know, in the so-called intellectual dark web. I want to know what people are out there thinking, and I want to know what they're communicating to their followers, no matter how uh, how extreme they might be. The thing that's disturbing about, like, you're curious about what these people think, and a lot of people are, but there's a lot of people out there that will read a stat sheet of this person's views and immediately dismiss them and say, like, oh, well, they're a Nazi, so... How, how, can, how can you listen to what a Nazi has to say? Right. They just fucking go for, uh, they go from zero to a hundred and just, you call someone a Nazi, right. all of a sudden nothing they say is valid. And uh, I, I don't understand how we've gotten to this point where people are so incredibly dismissive of someone who may be a fucking genius. Right. Because they disagree with you on one social Right. Well, it's it's the throwing out the baby with the bathwater thing. Absolutely, yeah. I was listening to this Sam Harris uh, podcast recently, and he was talking about how he was talking about the fallacy of throwing out everything someone says because of one thing that they say. It's like, sure, I, I like the idea of no one is dumb enough to be wrong all the time, and no one is smart enough to be right all the time. It's like, and and I think he makes a comparison where he's like, he's like. I find Donald Trump to be the most repellent human being on earth today, or one of the most repellent human beings on earth today. I think he's a reprehensible human being. But if he says something that is correct, I think that it's important that we acknowledge the correctness in that so that we sure. get our narrative straight. Even a, bro- even a broken clock is right twice a day. It, hey. Absolutely. Listen yeah. to that. Bam. You know what I mean? And it, it's like, and, uh, and what I think is is the main factor is, and and I'm not, you know, I I rag on social media a lot, but it is, you know, it's an amazing invention. It connects people in the world, and I do think that it is making the world a better place. And at the same time, because you get a little dopamine hit every time you get a like or a comment, you're going to try and score as many points for your team as you can in order to rack up your scorecard of dopamine hits sure you know what i mean so if you have been playing identity politics and you have allied yourself with a certain team then you're on the hunt for anything which is going to give you an opportunity to score points for your team so you see someone like ben shapiro yeah 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 (laughs) It's awful, dude. It's the worst. So you see someone like Ben Shapiro, who has a lot of well-researched, like, factual information, but he has some beliefs that I don't agree with because he's, you know, he's, um, I guess it would be fair to say he's uh, he's a fundamentalist, um, like, he's a fundamentalist Jew, right? Yeah. Like, like, so he he thinks that, uh, like, he thinks that uh, Adam and Eve was a real thing. Yeah, shit like that. Yeah, and so because he has ideas like that, people automatically dismiss him. But it's like, well, you're not listening to his entire argument. You're not listening to everything that he's communicating. And sure. there are some things that he's saying that we need to be paying attention to. Sure. You know, and it's and to make a fundamental attribution error, assigning him to this kind of abstract you know, amorphous group of people we call the alt-right 
you know, it's, I, I just think it's super dismissive and it's, it's limiting in our ability to, um, to fully understand where we are as a civilization. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a real good Frank Zappa quote where he says like, the mind is like a parachute. It doesn't really work unless it's open. Right. And, absolutely. and, and being, being open to take it all in, you know, I, I can learn something from a crazy guy on the bus. You know, sure. I can I can learn something from someone on death row. You know, it's like it's one of the reasons that I am I am opposed to the death penalty. And, and I mean, even in the most extreme cases, because I think that, you know, I don't think they should be running around on the street. But I think if a if a psychopath remaining alive and in prison creates the opportunity for him to be studied and researched like you guys watch mind hunter yes they aren't putting those guys they didn't put those guys to death they sent a fbi behaviorists to the prisons to go vi visit them and learn about them so they could learn about killers if so they could learn about how killers think if keeping even the worst murderers alive could help advance science to the point that maybe we found a cure for psychopathy. Like, imagine if you could cure a psychopath with a pill. Like, give him a pill and it it's It grows like, out of the ground. Yeah. It's called mushrooms. It's called mushrooms. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, it doesn't always work like that, but uh, the thing that's interesting to me more so than that for the death penalty um, is every once in a while, they'll fucking put somebody on death row that actually didn't do it. Right. That's fucking terrifying. Well, because uh, get the death penalty and you didn't even fucking do it. Forensics aren't as infallible as as we like to think. Even, right. Even DNA. Right. That's an insane thought, though, and it's yeah. happened to people. Mm. Yeah. Wrongfully. Even accused. DNA can be wrong, and there are there are people who are in Brit like because wrong, people wrongfully convicted. People it wrongfully a lot. assume that in order to get convicted of a crime, they have to produce infallible evidence. That that you committed the crime. No, you just have to convince a jury. Yeah, you have to convince mm, a jury with, with within a reasonable doubt, beyond reasonable a reasonable doubt. doubt. Yeah. And so there are people that go to prison all the time. There are people who make plea bargains for crimes they didn't commit all the time. Yeah. That's why the stories of people who who managed to get out of that, like the the Central Park Seven, those guys, like the reason those stories are such a big deal is because they're outliers. Because there's some of the few people from their background and in their type of situation who actually committed. And this is after years of being brutalized in prison, you know, for some of them, committed to their innocence and did not get uh, absolved until many, many, many years down the road. Oh, yeah. Damien Eccles. Yeah. Damien Eccles. And, uh, and, and, and he suffered uh, greatly in the end, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. So anyway, uh want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors on that note <laughs> who who may be requesting that their names are pulled from the podcast after that discussion. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows? Not actually not our sponsors because, you know, I think our sponsors understand this little thing called nuance. And um, and, you know, it is just a podcast. After all, we are not kings. This is, this we are true. not emperors. We are not. uh we're, we're not tastemakers. Yeah. Well, and we're not creating policy here at the Nug Nation Studios. 
in beautiful Denver, Colorado, in an undisclosed location. <laughs> Go to thenugnation.com. See all the Nugs in their wacky adventures in the town of Nugville. Check out the video we did with Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, you might listen to it over the telephone if you if you feel so <laughs> inclined. He did it for me. Dude, we're working on some new stuff right now that is going to be really cool. We're working on a thing for the Super Bowl. Like, oh, I'm nice. not, I can't say anything else. Well, not for the actual Super Bowl, but for something going on during the Super Bowl. It's going to be really fun. I can't give a single detail are you allowed, about it yet. Yeah, are you allowed to even talk about I it? I can't give a... I feel a like s- they told the wrong are, person. Are we going to have to cut this out? No, 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 no. I, I, all I said is something during the Super Bowl. And that's all I'm going to say. We've got a plan for some big things. Going to have some big names on it. It's going to be super funny and super fun, and I cannot wait to do it. Um, I love the Nug Nation. I love everything that they do for us, and uh, and man, I love I love doing voices for their wacky little show. So go to thenugnation.com, check it out. Of course, Matula Plumbing, Matula, Displains, Illinois. Shit rolls downhill. Don't be at the bottom. Your number two is our number one priority. Your shit is our bread and butter. Angie's List Super Service Award winner back in 2011, the only year that mattered. He'll wear the booties for you. Um, and uh, so you and you and me and Jay were talking today. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jay Party Lord, friend of the show, guest of the show, and one of our patrons. Shout out to Jay. Uh, he said today, he's like, he's like, I hate to admit it, but every time you guys do the Matula Plumbing shout out, I say it along with you at home. <laughs> yes. he, he said he did it in his, he's a tattoo artist and he did it in the shop today <laughs> he was listening to it and he just went Matula that's so great so we encourage all of you to, do to that say now. Matula along just, with us yeah, it shout really out Matula be embraced by wherever all. you just, are just wherever you're listening shout it out loud yeah one let of the, the world dude, know that you like a plumber from Chicago one of these days we're going to be doing a show mm-hmm. and we're going to get a whole crowd to say Matula with us it's going to happen that's probably easier than you think. Did did you see did you see the follow up that um, Jay has finally gotten in touch with Jerry Matula and uh. and send him over? He's like, I hope he doesn't think I'm a creep because the favorite Jay's favorite part of the show is the Matula plumbing shout out. He said that's his favorite part of the show. When he came on the show, he's like, I've been waiting for this part just to do the Matula shout out, and so he made a shirt. That's a mock-up of the uh, the Metallica "Metal Up Your Ass" shirt, and uh, he made a Matula logo, and it's like the toilet with the plunger coming out of it. It just says "Jerry up your ass." And while we were on break, he sent us a text, and uh, and I was just like, "Oh, he's gonna love it. He's gonna love it. Just send it over to him." And he's like, "Well, I wouldn't say he loved it. He's pretty psyched though. He thinks the logo looks too much like the Batman logo, <laughs> but but just like." I would just love to be there with Jerry when Jay Party Lord, a total stranger, just sent him over this mock-up t-shirt design and is just like, hey, man, I just want to let you know I'm a big fan of what you do. I believe in what you do, man. I'm a big fan in your plumbing company. And keep in mind, Jerry Matula doesn't listen to this show. Like, he doesn't know that we have given him a shout-out on literally every single episode of the podcast. Like, he backs us on Patreon, and I was like, hey, just so you know, we've given you a shout-out as a sponsor on every episode of the podcast. And he's like, oh, right on, man. That's fucking cool. And then out of nowhere, he gets some artwork sent by some fucking artist in Denver (laughs) that is like, hey, man, love what you do. (laughs) 
It's like, what He's the fuck fans. are you guys? Yeah, Jerry dude. Matula, folk hero. Dude, I I might just fans, print man. the Matula shirts just to like like send to people who are fans of the show just to freak Jerry out. Like to see people walking around in unauthorized Matula plumbing <laughs> merchandise. So, hey, man, that's kind of bad for my business to have it say Jerry up your ass. I'd appreciate it if you didn't do it. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. This thing's bigger than you maybe, now. Maybe we can make a censored one. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Matula oblongata. Matula <laughs> oblongata. <laughs> uh, Evergroove Studio in Evergreen, Colorado, celebrating 13 years as, in my opinion, the coolest studio around. I went up there um, for the party, and they've done a they've they've done a total remodel on the studio, redid the floors. Uh, they got a brand new desk and console in there, a bunch of new sidecars and toys, and and really fun stuff. Um, dude, the new the new like mastering setup that that Brad has it it mm. looks like a mad scientist lives there, and cool. the lighting is fantastic too. Yeah, like you can control the lighting on an app. And like they're they're all color changing lights. It looks like a fucking spaceship in there, dude. Cannot wait to get back in there and work on the next run of songs. Uh, Brad is going to be mixing and mastering some stuff of ours this week, and going to be embedding some ISRC codes. Let me put up my glasses real quick. Embedding some ISRC codes for uh, the new release we got coming out. So uh, and then he's going away to Iceland for a while. But cool. uh, but I guarantee he's still going to be working to some degree while he's on the road because that's the type of guy Brad Smalling is. Go see Brad and Jenny and the Ethans and and all the just amazing people that that work at Evergroove Studio. Check them out. Uh, Flipside Music on South Tacoma Street in Denver, Colorado. What was the new thing that we came up with for Flipside? We had a new. Um, Man, I fucking forgot. Shit, I forgot. We had too. a good one. Yeah, dude, we had a really good one it's for. Like, oh, I'll have to go back and listen cool to the shit or something like oh, that. Oh, oh, uh, only rad shit. Or only something. rad shit. Yeah, only rad shit. Rad shit only. Um, I was just in there. I just bought a pedal. Did you? Yeah, I did that. Dude, Flipside's got cool stuff, man. Guitars, amps, pedals, and a uh, fucking Ike at the helm, man. Uh, Archmaster of the Order of the Baldman. <laughs> um, which is a sacred order that Gordo belongs to, and that I am, um, I'm a what do you call it? Prospecting for. Yeah, well, you, you're still not qualified, buddy. <laughs> you still have most of your hair, so. Dude, I feel no, like sorry. I'm like in between. You know what I mean? Like, no, no I'm you're, you're, a boy and I'm a man. <laughs> you're still you're still two thirds a hairsman. Okay. <laughs> two thirds a hairsman. You're one, two. Three times like, a like, hairsman. Like <laughs> You've got a couple long hairsmen and a couple baldmen up in the up yeah, in the nug nation. I know. I'm like yeah. I'm like right in between, and it's like I just feel like I don't belong anywhere, man. Like the long hair guys are like, oh, 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 look at the bald guy, and the bald guys are like, you can still get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> They're like. You still have to pay money to get a haircut. You're not one of us. I, I was at work not too long ago, and I had, like, a tangle in my hair, and I was trying to get it out, and it was just real frustrating. And this regular sitting at the bar, this guy I see, like, two or three times a week, he's like, oh, you having a problem with all your hair there? <laughs> and I was just like, sorry, man. I said, nah. <laughs> it was really funny. So, yeah, go to Flipside Music and uh, <laughs> <laughs> help support. Check out... <laughs> 
<laughs> all the different hair styles. Every time, and types. every time you buy a guitar, Ike gets a hair. One. Damn. One ear, single strand. An ear hair. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, mutiny information cafe on South Broadway. This is, of course, a mutiny transmission. Mutiny Information Cafe is a, a cultural oasis in the heart of Denver. They specialize in comics, books, records, live events. Uh, they're doing podcasts and live streaming down in the basement. Um, man, they've got cereal, the largest selection of Torini syrups. No one has a larger selection of Torini syrups. No Nobody. One. Go I, see Jim. And I Matt. hear they have the Black Knight pinball machine there. Do they? That's a great machine. They the also have one. our comic the brand book. Brand new one. Oh, the brand new the one. Brand new one. Yeah. I man. haven't been in there recently, but somebody told me they have it, and if they do. I want to go. Yeah, we so should go I'll check it out. Later. They also have our comic there. And, uh, oh, so I had an idea, and I want to run this by you. Um, so, you know, um, Jared, the guy who came and did the live stream at Brian's service, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to talk to him and see if he would be interested in coming and live streaming a comic reading. When we release the new comic... And Gordo, you're going to be part of this too, all right? So this weekend, we're going to record the principal voiceovers for the Frontlines of Good Times Chapter 3. All right, we're going to sit down and start going through it. We're just going to start going through the comic. And, uh, and we're going to have to edit some stuff, and we're going to have to do retakes and things like that. But we're going to we really want to capture the vibe of doing it like a radio play. And um, what I want to do is get all the sound effects on a sampler. And I want to schedule a, uh, a live reading at Mutiny and get two cameras in there, have Jared come in and run a live stream and have it run between like a camera on the audience, a camera on us, and then the direct feed from the comic itself and have Gordo sit there on a sampler and do all the sound effects <laughs> for the comic. I'll be your button pusher. And kind of and do that on like YouTube Live, like in between when the the motion comic comes out. Mm -hmm. It's like the motion comic will come out much later, but because it takes so long to do it, I want to do something to promote the release and just do the live comic reading. I think that'd be a lot of fun, and I think it'd be really funny too. That Absolutely, dude. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be good. So yeah, go by Mutiny Information Cafe. Tell them you heard about this idea on the motherfucking podcast, and they'll go, uh, what? <laughs> 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 Rocket Space Rehearsal Studios in Denver, Colorado, 2712 uh, Larimer Street, next to Larimer Lounge. Stop in for a beer, see our buddy Mikey Mulligan at Larimer Lounge, and then go to rehearsal at one of the cleanest, meanest rehearsal studios in the state, in the country. I've been to a lot of hourly rental spaces. Well, not a lot, but I've been to some hourly rental spaces around the country, and theirs is the cleanest and the meanest. Uh, quality equipment. Uh, they strive for excellence, and Kate Innes is just one of the best people that I know out there. Um, it's the official rehearsal space of Motherfucking Ruckus and tons of other bands. Dave, have you guys ever... Uh, We've not rehearsed in there yet. You haven't but done we it? we may do it before this next run. It's good, man. It's super convenient. All you got to do is bring your guitars and, and plug in and have a good time and then go home. Rocket Space, you ain't got to carry shit. Tell Kate the boy sent you. Um, who? Which one? Patreon. Are we there yet? I think that's... Have that's we gotten a, everybody? I think we're there. 
Okay. All right, if I forgot anybody, we'll have to make sure that we do our, 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 our double, double, double shout-out, shout-out, shout-out next week. Uh, of course, I want to give a shout-out to all the people who back us on Patreon.com slash MFRuckus. Seriously, you guys, this keeps us afloat. We are going to be able to do so much. I've uh, been recently having meetings with Macy, the motion comic guy, and Jake, the, the comic guy, and our publicist that we don't have and we're not supposed to say we have because that ruins the optics of having a publicist, but our publicist that we pay money to help promote our band. Very expensive, very exclusive. Very mm. expensive, very exclusive. But he doesn't exist because we're not supposed to have him. Actually, that's actually one of the things he told me. He's like, don't tell people you have a publicist. He's like, but I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I've been talking with um, uh, Brad and everything, and we've been kind of doing our, our budget projections for the year. And, um, it, man, with the, with the little bit that we get from Patreon, we're able to keep the fucking train on the tracks. And we wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Our patrons get access to exclusive content, early releases, VIP parties with beer and food, all in exchange for a small monthly contribution. To learn more about it and how you can help us make cool shit, go to patreon.com slash mfruckus. Now, talking with David Sanchez here, uh, you've, been, you've mentioned mushrooms now three times in the episode, so I want to ask you about your experience with the fun mm. Gus, my fun friend Gus, the, the fun, fun guy, Gus. the fun guy. So, so first of all, when was the last time that you used mushrooms? Like, how often do you do it's it? It's been a while. It's it's not a very frequent thing. You know, it's not something that you can do all the time. No, and you wouldn't you would be, want to. You'd be out of your fucking mind if well, you did it all, all the time. And it's abusing it if you do it all the time. Yeah, it's a waste. Yeah, it's. I I think of it like, and and maybe this is. Maybe this will help, like, assign language to kind of the way that you use it. I use it in a shamanic sense. Like, I use it in a, in a medicinal sense. Like, once, maybe twice a year. Yeah, it's about all you need. And it has to be in an in a integrative application. Like, it, like I've got to use it to integrate something, like an experience or a chapter in my life or to, like, work through a problem or, like, a... A like I did one of the last times I did anything psilocybin at all was I took um, I took some truffles in Belgium at the very end of one of our tours. That's one of the last times that I did it. And I felt like I needed to integrate and galvanize the feelings of possibility and optimism that I was having at the end of that trip. Right. You know what I mean? Intensify the good feeling. R well, just to like expand my imagination into what was possible right you know what i mean because i had gone through this experience where where so many possibilities were opened up to me and i was already very excited about what the future had in store for us that i wanted to expand upon that well also you know it unlocks your creativity massively right so yeah if, if you're already having like creative thoughts and you fucking chomp a little bit of just like a little microdose. A little bit of fungus, you're, you're going to be way more productive when it comes to brainstorming and you know, mm -hmm. getting outside of your usual thought box. I've also found that it, it definitely helps with depression. Absolutely, yeah. Like, if you are, and I think LSD does this too. 
Yeah, I think all psychedelics do. Um, there, there's just this really great TED Talk where they're talking about – there's this dude from Johns Hopkins University talking about using psilocybin for people that are terminally ill and coming to gr- terms with uh, their mortality. Mm-hmm. It's, it has massive benefits for that. And uh, of all the research that I've done, um, I've found that it, it's very good for treating PTSD, anxiety, right. depression, addiction. Um like just all kinds of shit, and also previously it was thought that once your brain was damaged, it's just fucked. Right, you, you can't really repair your brain. That it's turning out to be false. Not true. Psilocybin can repair broken mm. neural synapses in the brain. Right, because it opens it, up new neural pathways and n- kind of like. Not only does it open up new ones, but it can repair fucked up really? ones. Really, neuroplasticity. Yes. yes. Well, yeah, look man. it up. Yeah, 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 the neurogenesis happens, and, you know, you create all these new neural pathways, but it also, yeah, repairs damaged parts. Well, there's this there's synapses. this idea, too, of, like, um, it was widely thought for a long time that uh, neurotransmitter, like the, su- the substance of neurotransmitter, was just in your brain, mm-hmm. but it bathes every cell in your body. Sure. Like, you have, you have, so, when you make repairs in your brain, you know, it's not just tripping and getting all spaced out. Like, when you are making repairs in your brain and creating new neural neural pathways and repairing broken ones you're also repairing your body in a lot of ways yeah because you're getting a cleaner signal to the neurotransmitter that is in the cells of your your physical body you have a giant increase in your sensitivity of your physical body right when you're intoxicated on psilocybin right and and the effects massive, are massive awareness the effects in in some cases can be lasting and permanent like if you if you have a thought while you're on psilocybin you can't unknow that thought right you know or you, if you if you have an experience and something opens up and you have some sort of epiphany you know that sticks with you a mind that has been stretched to a bigger like thing can never go back to its old shape right it's right. gonna stay there i the when i the first time i quote unquote broke edge like when like I had been totally substance free for a significant period of time and then I decided White Fudge did a show up in Netherland and I met a guy that I have affectionately referred to as Dan the Acid Man uh, ever since but I met him at the show he came up to me after the show and he was like hey man do you want to come with me to my trailer and do acid and it had been a while, and I was a little, you know, I was a little apprehensive about it. Like, I was a little fearful that if I did that, I would cross back into, I would, like, want to drink because I'd be intoxicated. My inhibitions would be down, and I'd want to drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes and, and all those things. So I was a little nervous about it, a yeah. little, you know, tentative about it at first. Sure. But then I just went with it, and I went with him, and we, we took a dose of this amazing acid. And I went, and I sat around the fire with my friends who were all drunk and we're all doing cocaine and we're all smoking cigarettes and I had absolute zero interest in any of it. I sat drinking a non-alcoholic beer the whole time, which I thought was hilarious because it was all bubbly and foamy and fun and stuff, you know, and I'm (laughs) tripping. And like, I started doing all these characters and I'm laughing and I'm having fun and everybody passed out all drunk and whatnot and I watched the sun come up over Nederland, which if you've ever seen that, it's 
remarkably beautiful. Like N- Nederland is one of the more beautiful places in the state. Yeah, it's in Boulder County, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's like really pretty up there. It's like Boulder's redneck cousin almost. Yeah, you know. So it's just it's just beautiful and it's wild and the the wind patterns are kind of different there. Like clouds will blow into Nederland and you'll actually like watch a cloud change direction. Like, so it'll, like, move in and then move back just because of the way the airstream works up there. So I'm watching the sun come up, and I'm watching these clouds just, like, rapidly roll in. And I'm just seeing, like, nature breathing. And I'm, I watched every second of sunrise. And I started crying. Man, it was just it was just one of the mo- – it's, it's like when you were talking about summiting uh, Gray's Peak, Gordo, yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. It was like that – that level of profundity, you know, where, where I was just so grateful to be alive. I was so grateful to have my sobriety. You know, I was while so, you're on acid. While I was on acid, <laughs> well, I totally understand it. It sounds like a joke, but it, I, no, I get yeah, it. No, it, it makes it makes sense to me. It, yeah. It's it's different. I mean, people take medications while they're in sobriety that are. Far that have far fewer benefits and far more detriments. Yeah. Than than LSD or psilocybin does. For sure. And we don't consider them, you know, uh, relapsing in any way. Like, how is it not relapsing to take Zoloft or something else that alters your consciousness? I mean, because it's considered helpful it's considered a healthy measure to deal with your depression or maybe damage that you've done through being on drugs and alcohol right and i felt like the reset button had been hit that's what they do you know that's what psychedelics do and i reset button for your brain yeah (laughs) and i and i felt and i saw my friends get up in the morning who were hung over and they looked dead like while I was on acid, they looked very ashen and sickly, and just like they they seemed they seemed very unhappy. They seemed to be suffering a great deal, and I felt very much alive, and I felt very optimistic, and I I didn't have any kind of major dopamine crash after the fact. Like I I went home and went to bed, you know, and I slept the day away, but I got up just feeling like. Like, it was the first time when I was like, yeah, I'm going to be able to stick with this. You know, I made the right decision, and I'm looking forward to the rest of my life without alcohol and hard drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I really don't consider – I mean, even though the effects of psilocybin and LSD are extremely powerful, right? I don't consider those hard drugs. They're not – like they're intoxicants because yeah, they they're it, not addictive. They're not gonna kill you if you have too much. Like they might make you wish you were dead. Yeah, <laughs> you have too much. Most of the time, though, you're gonna have a profound uh, thoughts and a massive increase in your appreciation for being alive in the world that we live right. in, and a, a deeper connection felt to all of uh, the rest of humanity and this planet and everything that's out there. For the generally speaking, I think the world would be a much better place if everyone fucking tripped. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> if everyone 100%. took one trip on like the same day, 
we'd live in a different world in a week. We would live in an absolutely wow. different world in a week if ever. In a better one too. Now, now we have it been wouldn't doing shit wrong for a long time. It wouldn't dose the water. Dose the water. I mean, it wouldn't. It wouldn't create a utopia overnight. No, no definitely but not. But just if you, even if it caused a one percent evolutionary leap. That 1% evolutionary leap in the collective consciousness, who knows how that would compound and aggregate over time. Yeah, the thing that blows my mind is like people have been eating psychedelic mushrooms since way before they figured out how to light shit on fire and smoke it. Right, right, right. Um, one of my favorite books is by Terrence McKenna, Food of the Gods. Right. And he's talking about the history of drugs and like uh, the evolution of society with drugs on, on our side. And uh, it's, it's amazing. Like, d- eating psilocybin mushrooms is like a natural human birthright that has been hijacked from us just as recently as the 60s. Right. Up until then, humans for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, have been consuming these on a regular basis. And it's In different parts of the world. Oh, yeah, all but, over. But uh, the, the Western puritanical mind, you know, got a hold of it, and, and uh, the, the military couldn't keep it controlled they couldn't you know keep people from getting access to it and doing whatever they want with it and it's it's very grotesque it's fucking disgusting that right that natural human birthright has been taken away from us when it's something that you know uh, and a lot of the same people that would be adamant uh on the side of the war on drugs and we shouldn't let people have this to intoxicate their own body are the same people that you know are not put making the connection that if you believe in God, God fucking put it there for us to right, eat. Right. So, and and if you and, and if you, and you want to meet God, yeah. fucking eat some exactly. of that shit, <laughs> dude. Whatever. Yes. <laughs> even even if you don't consider yourself a religious person, it, it it cannot be denied that you connect to some sort of higher conscious mind. Oh yeah, there's when, a spiritual thing going on on a very deep level. Yeah, and I really, yeah. I feel like the people who have quote unquote bad trips are people who are clinging too tightly to their map of reality when they go into these states. That, or they're just they're already in a bad headspace, and right. that's not a good time to go on a trip. Right. You, you don't want to intensify a bad headspace. Right. You know. Um, you were talking about like the the connection that you feel to greater higher power or whatever. Right. Um, so there is a song that's gonna be on our new record, and it's about the concept, philosophical concept of panpsychism, uh, meaning that everything possesses consciousness. Right. Which is a fascinating idea. Which is unprovable, untestable hypothesis, but I think entirely makes a lot of sense. Even like you know this table or you know this microphone possess consciousness. It's that idea. You can't prove it, but you can't disprove it. And uh, it's that idea that there is there is an experience like being a table. There is an experience like being, well, you know, the microphone. Well, it's, and it's I, that I, idea. I think you know, I, my, personally, I think it's entirely possible that consciousness is the bedrock of existence, an even more fundamental principle than gravity. Right. I think it's entirely possible. Uh, when we talk about like on uh, the atomic level. Like in physics and stuff, you talk about the atom and there's the nucleus and there's the fucking, you know, all the different parts like spinning around but not touching each other. 
that is a display of some sort of consciousness, some sort of awareness. I don't mean consciousness like it has its own thoughts and it and it uh, uh, you know thinks and has memories. I mean like just some sort of basic awareness. And on a subatomic level, there appears to be some sort of awareness. Like Otherwise, the idea that nothing would exist. Like the idea that particles change when observed, like that whole idea. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it, without that fundamental building block of matter, they say is the atom, without the atom getting along with itself, nothing would exist. Right. So I think it's very possible that consciousness is the bedrock of all of existence, yeah. even more fundamental than gravity or light or any of this. You know, and and, and that's, the, that's one thing with material atheism that that just seems a little limited to me you know i i used i used to call myself an atheist like i used to refer to myself in that way but there is something because like the at least the perceived significance of consciousness among all of us seems to have like it, it's got to mean something you know what I mean? It's got to it's it's got to be it's it's got to have some substantial uh, mass to it. You know what I mean? There there has to be a a a, a, a material particle makeup there has to be ingredients to consciousness. And this is what I'm saying. I right. think that it's possible that literally everything is consciousness possesses it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, everything. No, no I, I, I've, I've, I've heard a little bit about some of the the panpsychism arguments, and um, there, God, I can't remember. I, I heard a podcast not that long ago, but it was, it was someone who is, who is by profession a skeptic. Like it is their, it is their job to you know disprove, you know, outlandish theories and things sure. like that. But there are starting to be, there's starting to be data that is emerging that seems to initially um, lean towards the, the probability of, of panpsychism, of the, the idea that all things have consciousness to a matter of degree and that it, that it, that it uh, undergirds everything. Um, and I would like to believe that. I would like to believe... Like, have you ever heard the... There's the metaphor of referring to the collective consciousness like waves in the ocean like you have a whole ocean and then a wave emerges from the ocean and then eventually goes back down into the ocean that wave is not a separate thing from the ocean that, it is, it that is wave the is ocean. It, it is the ocean it's a part of it and we we conceptualize a wave as a separate phenomenon right but it's just it's just the way that the the ocean is moving or a whirlpool it's just a process within the system of that ocean you know what i mean so i think of like an individual consciousness as being one wave coming out of the ocean and then returning back to the the ocean like you're talking about like consciousness being the bedrock of 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 all existence um yeah yeah uh, yeah, the, that's cool stuff. The wave thing is uh, interesting because that's how we we are all sharing an experience together. Even people that are not in this room or n will never hear this, we're mm -hmm. all sharing some experience right. together. We all see uh, similar colors in the skies. We all see, right. we, all, we all feel gravity occasionally. 
Uh, right. We're all sharing this uh, experience, but subjectively, your opinion's different than mine. Your perspective's different than mine. We all have a subjective universe right. in our own behind our eyes, but we're all sharing the same it's giant not a separate, web. Right. It's not a separate, mm. isolated experience. Like, right. It, it, like and, there and, is a and guy. Psychedelics help you realize these right. things. Like even they might be things you already realize, but they fucking like. Hammer it into your head. Well, they clear they clear the cobwebs away. They clear the fog away and yeah. allow you to go. Oh yeah, I I, kn- I knew that, but you just reinforced it. I took um yeah. I took mushrooms. So around my thirtieth birthday, I left my marriage. You know, I let I left a a marriage which was falling apart. You know, um, you know by. Mutual fault and no fault, you know what I mean. It was just one. It was one of those things, and I was beginning to lean towards, you know, considering the role that substance abuse was playing in my life, and I was moving into a new career. You know, I it started working at Three Kings around that time. Um, I was I was really embarking on a new chapter in my life, and I took mushrooms. And I had this experience while on mushrooms of peeling back layers of consciousness one at a time, like individual parts of like, like I, I, it was almost like I was layering them back on, you know, I had while on mushrooms, I had this experience of completely being like transcending them. And then I observed as I was coming back into them and those layers were coming back on. It's like, oh, there are, are, you know. I, I even remember saying to myself in my head, there are our, um, you know, social graces. There are our fears and apprehensions. There are our feelings of isolation. There are all these, like... And, the, and you were sla- sla- piling them piling, onto yourself? Piling them back on. So, the, I, so there was an initial point where you didn't have any I of I didn't those. have any of them. Total detachment. But then I became... But then I became aware of how they exist in the right. psyche. Yes. And and I I was like, there is our sadness. There is our fear. There is our anger. Just picking them up then as you our, walk by. Then is, there is our inferiority. You know, I had this experience of being able to, to deconstruct these components, you know, and accept that they were returning to me because I'm a human being living in society, you know, living in, in the cloud of of the 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 perceptions that we've all agreed upon but being able to return to that with the awareness that they exist and that they are not part of who we truly are yeah it's it's nice that you get to pick them up and observe it look at it a little bit before you put it back in your pocket right you know that's something that uh, uh, we don't often do yeah when, when we're dead sober and in the mindset of wake up coffee go to work, get off, watch TV, go to sleep, do it all over again. Yeah, like the, and, and this guy thoughts. cut me off in traffic. And, right, these, and these I, are not thoughts I think you this have person's normally. mad at mm-hmm. me, and and uh, I wonder if so-and-so is going to call me back. And, and uh, you know, I'm so envious that that Havoc is doing so amazing and we're sitting at home doing whatnot. And, and ah, uh, you know, fuck that guy on the sidewalk, and uh, I hope this dude doesn't come sit next to me on the bus, and da 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 da, and all the like, 
little just like you got to hit that psychedelic reset button. Everyone, it's amazing. It's amazing what uh, you know, chomping on some fungus and going on a walk in the woods will do for your life. Yeah. Uh, Logan and I took LSD together for the first time. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I like that. That was fun, <laughs> and it was back when um, it was back when uh, AOL Instant Messenger was a thing. ASL. ASL. Age, <laughs> sex, location. Uh, yeah. Age, sex, <laughs> I was LSD. like, American Sign Language? Yeah. What? Yes, Age American Sign Language. <laughs> Age, sex, location. Figured well, it out. So Logan's at his house around Yeah, we the didn't corner. really trip together for very long because we were so young. We were at youth group. Eventually, we had to go home. So it was just kind of like body high, wacky, funny shit for a bit. And then... It was like, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. You and know? then we went home and tripped individually, but we're chatting on AOL Instant Messenger, and you could, like, the only shit you get, like, people don't, kids these days don't realize they got their GIFs and their emojis and all these different things. All we had was you could change the background color, you could change the text color. That's it. And you could change the size. I don't even think you could change the font. But, like, Logan and I are sending messages back and forth to each other and, like, trying to trip each other out. And I remember sending this, like, huge chain of really trippy stuff to Logan, and he didn't say anything for a long time. And I don't think I knew that you could change the background and the font. And Logan, just finally after, like, a long period of silence, and I'm like, Logan, are you there? Are you there? He just sends me in great big block letters, like, like, giant red letters with a big purple background. He just sent me a message that says, you're making me shit my overalls. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that? I I remember the story. I don't remember, like, uh, vision-wise. Dude, I'll never forget that as long as my lips. You're making me shit shit my my overalls. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) I, I must have been making a lot of noise because I remember my mom came into my room and I had made like a lot of snacks and had like different stuff and I had like cream cheese all over my face and she was like, What the fuck are you doing? I was just like just like <laughs> go to bed. I was like, Okay, so It was yeah. right it was right around the time that um one the <laughs> Star Wars episode two had come out and Taco Bell had like little Star Wars toys mm-hmm. and um and I had the Yoda toy. And it was like sitting on my shelf and I'm tripping all <laughs> I'm tripping all hard and I'm like looking at Yoda. I'm like, Yoda? And he I'm like, do I have the force? And the little toy just went, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And I went, whoa. And I'm like laying in bed. Like, I'm like, I gotta go to sleep. I gotta go to school in the morning. So I'm like trying to go to sleep. And like every time I'm and then I like look at my legs in the blanket, and the moonlight is coming through my window on the blanket, and I'm like, all right. To sleep gotta go to sleep and i'm just like looking at my legs as i'm adjusting the, the covers and i start seeing scenes emerge from the blanket like every time i move the blanket a new scene emerges like it's like i move my blanket one way and it's like oh there's a mountain range and there's a valley down there and oh there's where the people live down in the valley and there's the cabin with the smoke that's coming up and da 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 and i'm like god damn it go to sleep Every time I would move my leg, it would turn into into something else. It was like I was. It's like, you think about uh, like old, old uh, ancient myths that people might have about the world being like like 
on God's back or being like on God's lap or something like that. And I just like was like, what if that's a whole world that's down below me and I'm the creator and I'm destroying it? <laughs> so fucking fun, man. It's amazing how many complex thoughts can go through your mind in a instant. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. When you're tripping. And this one time I I went to bed on tour. I had eaten some uh, paper, we'll call it. Some Alesti. Like your homework? You had some mm-hmm. homework? Yeah, the dog ate myself. Um, <laughs> so I, I ate some paper, though, and I went to my bunk. Everybody else was already sleeping on the bus. I was like, I'm going to lay in my bunk and, like, throw on my headphones and listen to some Beethoven or something and go to sleep. And I listened to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and I could not fucking go to sleep because I was, I I was seeing... Imagine. I was visually seeing the music be represented in all these geometric, colorful patterns that were morphing and twisting into form, in and out of forms, and I was literally watching a fucking crazy cartoon of the music with my eyes closed. And it's stuff that 10 seconds of what I saw in my mind would have taken a fucking 3D visual artist like fucking four days to Dude, figure and out. And it would have cost so much money. It would have cost so much money. Yeah. Way more than the like three dollars worth of acid that I ate. Oh yeah. <laughs> Dude and No, but it's crazy in, in such a small amount of time, so much crazy shit your brain can come up with just out of nowhere. Dude, and it's like you'll have these thoughts that like are so profound you can hardly believe they came from your own brain. Mm-hmm. And you're like, This could change the world. Like this is Dude, this is like, I can't believe I had this amazing epiphany. And you try to write it down and you go back and look at it later. And it's just like gibberish just written on a page. And like you can sort of grab on it. Like, you know, those ideas are there. You can recognize them. But like summoning the language to communicate them to people after the fact is like it is, is almost impossible. Like, dude, when we were going home from when we were leaving Belgium and driving to Germany to go drop off the van, and I was, like, peeking and tripping my balls off. Like, I I saw our whole career out in front of us. I, like, saw, like, the role that we were meant to play in the greater story of humanity. Like, I felt like, dude, I felt like I was, like, this leader on a space expedition, and I had... Tony on one side of me and I had Parker on the other side of me and I had I had you and Ty in the back and it was I think that might have been what largely informed the dynamic of the comic you know what I mean just that idea of like the hero's journey of a band out on tour you know and the, and the, the significance the role that it played and, and like like how important it is and what a, what a noble and honorable f- profession it is to be a traveling entertainer like what a what a truly honorable service that is to provide for people and i think i don't think that that's like when i came up with the idea but it, it definitely informed the philosophical side of of what i was trying to create there it was really incredible man what were you gonna say gordo I was just going to say, uh, I listened to a Bad Brains album and heard a horn section. The ho- the, I listened to it the entire way through, and it was awesome. One time mm-hmm. on Mushrooms, it that, was incredible. That's really, you can, you can I hear could not, stuff I like could that. not believe what I was hearing, and, I was, and it was just like the arrangement of it was so rich. I was just like, 
It's amazing, and I kept just wondering, like, who wrote this? <laughs> who wrote this arrangement? It's so and, good. Like, and it was just, it's, it's just incredible. It's you like, know? oh, it was, I it wrote gone. it with my brain. Yeah, and it was gone, and it was just audio like... Audio hallucination. Yeah, it was one of my favorite trips that I ever took, just sitting there with my headphones and just like... That's oh, so cool, fuck. man. That's so cool. It makes movies better. It makes your friendships deeper. Like after uh, after Tony's bachelor party, mm -hmm. I feel bad that Tony didn't have a good time. <laughs> yeah, he okay. went he went and hid out. Yeah. Like he was like, I guess mushrooms just aren't my thing anymore. But I think there was like it was like half of us were having a great time, and the other half, and I don't I don't even think everybody did them. But some people were like, "Okay, I got to get away from the people that are losing their minds." That are yeah. super high. Yeah. Like, but like, I will, I will, <laughs> like the, the the people that were there that night, like, that was just such a tr like tremendous bonding experience mm -hmm. for all of us, and like, like I really felt like after that, it it just deepened our friendship so much, and um, you know, and like Ty and I are in the kitchen, and we were talking about Led Zeppelin. And we were talking about Led Zeppelin's use of dynamics. Mm -hmm. And, like, Ty was just, like, the drop. The Zeppelin drop. Like, like how Led Zeppelin, like, just puts drops in so many stuff, so many things. And I'm like, dude, I know what you're talking about. And I was like, I'll show you where it comes from, man. And I put on Hall of the Mountain King by Grieg. And, and like, li we listened to the entire Hall of the Mountain King. And, like, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, and like as it got more and more intense i'm like conducting and like i could dude i like every single note every single instrument just like playing together i was just like something that you would normally dismiss as just being like oh it's that song from fantasia or whatever you know you like experience it like in that state and you can appreciate every single musician that's involved in it. You can appreciate the artistry that went into composing that piece of work. You it's know? like hearing it for the first time. Yeah. It was incredible, man. <clears throat> I, I think I was in my room upstairs watching something crawl along, <laughs> crawl across the ceiling. You were in the creepy ring and, room. But I mean, I love horror movies and I love all that shit. So I wasn't like scared of it. I was just like, fuck yeah. Like, <laughs> That shit is rad. What's up, little dude? You know, he's just talking with this demon crawling around, around uh, the ceiling. Hot tubs on mushrooms are really something else. Because mm. remember, we had the hot tub, hot tub there at the cabin. Yeah. And uh, we were all sitting around, and this was before Ty had taken any. Because Ty was like, you know, Ty's got kids, and so he's super responsible. And, you know, the last thing you want is to be tripping your balls off, and the wife calls and says, you know, hey, the baby's sick. So Ty, you know, Ty has to think ahead of those things. And um, and I don't know if I would have been as, you know, forward thinking as he was. But, you know, he's like, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I don't know. And then we're in. What's fun about Ty is if you're on mushrooms, even if he's not, he will participate and help you trip right, better. Yeah. You know, so he we're knows all the name of the game. And he's like, OK. Yeah. I'm in, but yeah. So we're like all in the hot tub, just laughing and having fun. And we started making tub club jokes. Like we started referring to us as the tub club and anyone outside of the tub club just didn't get the tub club <laughs> and stuff like that. And Ty comes over totally sober and is like, hey, I'll support the tub club. 
He's like, I'll be your tub club booster. Da, da, da. And he's like going and getting beers and drinks and food for people. And then next thing you know, Ty comes down and he's like, you know, that really big one that looked kind of weird, like a little hooky branch thing with a mushroom on it. I took that we one. We called it the claw. The claw. Yeah. yeah. Ty's <laughs> like, I just ate the whole claw in one bite. And we're like, yeah. That was the last one left. <laughs> it was like in the middle of the table. You know, everybody's just picking their little piece. And there was one in the middle that was just evil as fuck looking. <laughs> and we're like, oh, dude, just talking about it. And out of nowhere, Ty just grabbed it. And we just, oh! it was great. It was fun, man. Well, uh, man, we should uh, we should take some mushrooms together sometime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd love to. Yeah, I, th- I think that'd be a lot of fun, man. <laughs> I, I mean, and then doing that and then going hiking in the mountains is probably my favorite thing in life to do. That's not musical. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I like that yeah. a lot too. And sometimes that sounds like fun. I've never, I've never been like up in the mountains and done it before. It's always been like weird city trips. You well, know? It's, it's, I think especially with do it. with it's art, fun. especially music, because of the um, man being like, no matter where you are in in the journey of of being a professional musician or being a professional entertainer it is a struggle the whole time wherever you are in being a human it's a struggle you know life's rough but we're tough we're tough enough to handle it you know what i mean but but i think that when you have gotten your heart broken so many times in music and it's really easy to just like feel beaten down over a long period of time i think it's great to unplug from it all and go into nature mushrooms or not just go just go escape into the mountains go hike around go be away from any kind of scene or any kind of world where any of that shit matters and realizing how little it matters and how much the only thing that does matter is the enjoyment that you get from it and the the connections that you make from people and the the joy that you bring to other people's lives. I think that like getting out in nature is perfect for that. It's it's Absolutely, a beautiful thing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It, and we're so fucking lucky to live here, dude. The, the mountains are right there. Like, I know. We, we could go escape and like be rid of light pollution and of highway noise and like we, we're lucky here. We don't have very many insects. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they're right fucking there. You don't have to go very far. No, not at all. No, especially it's like to get to like super rom- remote parts of the mountains. You really don't have to go very. N- not far. even an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's what's our time looking like, Gordo? A lot. Uh, we are mm-hmm. at two forty eight. Oh Jesus Christ! Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot. So is the so uh, <laughs> me and Logan. That would be a lot point. Me sure. and Logan and Ty are going to go. See, I told you, man. It's like. Two to three hours. Three hours usually means a long time, and we're really, you know, it flies by, and the discussions are a lot of fun. Um, Logan and Ty and I are going to go see this ZZ Top documentary. Mm-hmm. So we got to, we got, where are we going to go see it? Uh, it's in Northfield. No, oh, cool. So not okay, very far yeah. away. Um, real quick announcement. I probably should have mentioned this at the top of the show. Our next show and our only show on the books right now is we're playing with Judah at the uh, Bluebird Theater on Saturday. September 14th. Um, the Bluebird is not a huge club, so make sure you get your tickets. We do have some on flash seats if you want to get them directly from us. Fee free, FIFO, FUM. This is going to be a super duper fun show. Judah is the shit. Logan mm-hmm. got us into this band. Really cool. We're excited to do the show. And then after that, 
you're having surgery done, so we're not going to play for a little while. Yeah, um, it's not a very major surgery. No, and I you, know. And I, know. I had so many people hit me up the day you put it on Facebook, and you were like, are bass players going under the knife? And I had people hitting me up like, dude, are you okay? And it's like, I'm getting a little cyst taken out of my wrist. I'm going to be fine. Well, I mean, I just I did just say in the post that you were going to be out of commission for a yeah, little while. Yeah, but the way you worded it. I had people like concerned about my dude. Health. It's clickbait though. Like he it's fucking did the true. right thing. <laughs> yeah. It's clickbait. Now everybody's gonna be stoked when you're back. Yeah, yeah man. See. Oh man, did that surgery that? must have been crazy. <laughs> did you hear that Logan had part of his brain taken out? He's back. The other part. The the other <laughs> half. <laughs> um. Yeah. So yeah. real quick, um, what do you guys have coming up? Uh, we're going on tour for a couple weeks in October. Uh, we're playing a festival in Mexico with Guns N' Roses. Get the cool. fuck! God, fuck you. Yeah, wow. and, that's great. Uh, I'm planning on wearing a little top hat on stage. Oh, are it's you gonna keep an unlit cigarette? I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna see if we can possibly uh, get somebody to notice. <laughs> <laughs> I might get us kicked off of that festival. I don't know. Hey, but it'll uh, be a ton of fun, man. We're gonna do that. We're touring out there with uh, Ringworm and Mobile Death Camp. And oh, then cool. We play one more festival in Monterey, Mexico, on November 30th with like Nuclear Assault and uh, Dying Fetus and Emperor and a whole Fuck bunch yeah. of shit. Um, Dude, it's it's been it's been very cool. Um, Watching you accomplish what you've accomplished, mm. especially because it's we really like seeing good people do well. And, you know, we've known each other a long time. We brought, you know, we aren't the closest of acquaintances. You know, we don't we're not bros hanging out every weekend or anything like that. But, you know, I've 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 watched you throughout your whole career. And it's like it's really cool to see. And um we're super proud to have, have been able to witness that going on. Thank you, man. Well, a lot of it's due to gentlemen like yourself. Well, we're fucking laying down the groundwork. We're, we're, we're happy to have been a footnote on your epic ass. <laughs> so. we, we have we have one last show for the year. It's in Denver. We're playing uh, at the Bluebird December 7th with Violence and Axe Slasher. Ooh, uh, yeah. yeah. You know what? Richie told me about that yeah. one. That's a great one. And then we should have a new record come out like sometime in the spring. And we'll uh, get busy. Super cool, man. Beck and I got to see them in Paris when we were on our honeymoon. Like, we were. Oh, yeah. We were just like looking up shit. And I don't remember how I saw it, but I saw that Havoc and Fall of Carnage were playing in Paris when we were in Paris. Yeah. And I was like, we have to go. Like, we have to. Yeah. And she was like, yep, let's do it. So we went and we saw them on this like venue boat. Le Le Petit Ban. Le Petit Ban. (laughs) <laughs> and we saw them in Safala Carnage on a boat in Paris, and it was, like, one of the best parts of our honeymoon. It was really rad. That's so. really cool, man. Um, uh, also, I, I th- this is just, like, a small little aside thing. Um, I took Brian's records, mm. and I'm going through the records, and he's got, some, he's got some good shit. My brother had a pretty eclectic taste, and you're, like, seeing things from all these different sides of him. You know, you've got... The Temptations, and then you've got like Brand New, and then you've got The Descendants, and then you've got Metallica, and you've got all these different bands that my brother was into. And then I came across a Ruckus record, and then Dead in the Middle was a Havoc record. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, fa- I found, I found, and I knew you were coming on the show, and I'm like, holy shit, I can't, bl- I didn't even know, 
I didn't know my brother was a fan, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, I found – and it had been opened. It wasn't like he bought it and did nothing with it. Like, he had listened to it, you know? Cool. So I thought, I thought that that was a pretty, uh, uh, pretty synchronous uh, happening that happened this week. So that was really cool. Uh, yeah. Um, well, we're going to call it there. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. Yeah, thanks I appreciate for, the conversation. Thanks for having me in, man. Of course. It was fun. Yeah. And uh, so is there anything else housekeeping-wise we need to announce? One for the homies. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. We f- keep forgetting to do this. So we do this thing every week when we remember. <laughs> we do this. We try to do this thing every week. Uh, the one for the homies shout-out, which is if you think that there's a band out there that deserves a little extra love, um, we'll throw one of their songs at the end of the episode and people can listen to it while they're waiting, while they're trying to figure out the next podcast they want to listen to. Yes. So, I, I got who one. do you got? Uh, <clears throat> this one's for the homies in Psychosomatic. Psychosomatic. Psychosomatic is a band from Sacramento, California and uh, I recorded them last year and did a new record and they're fucking amazing. They're one of my favorite bands that like nobody knows about. Cool. Um, if you're going to play something of theirs, play something from uh, their record called The Unquenchable Thirst. Okay. So nice. this, so we're going to play a track now. From, well, Skibiki is going to add mm-hmm. a track onto the end. Skibiki! <laughs> but I'm going to hear it. Skibs uh, is going to throw on a track from Psychosomatic from, what was the name of the, the album? The Unquenchable Thirst. The Unquenchable Thirst. This has been the motherfucking podcast. I'm Aaron Howell. I'm Logan O'Connor. Gordatron. Yeah. And you can you can introduce yourself as well. Hi, people call me David Sanchez. <laughs> David Sanchez from Havoc on the motherfucking <laughs> podcast. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. I have no idea who the guest is. Bye-bye. Woo!
The motherfucking podcast is recorded at the Nug Nation Studios in Denver, Colorado, and hosted by Aaron Howell, Tony Lee, Logan O'Connor, and occasionally even Ty Blosser of the international power rock combo, Motherfucking Ruckus. Our producer in the studio is Gordon Ledfoot. Our producers in Chicago are Gene Skibbins and Adam Zielinski. All music except homie shoutouts and featured artists is written and performed by MF Ruckus and comes from the album The Front Lines of Good Times, Volume 1, coming this fall on Rodeo Star Records. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, if you find this podcast valuable or entertaining and you wish to support MF Ruckus further, you can rate, review, share, subscribe, follow us on any of our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Spotify. If you really want to help us do what we do, you can go to patreon.com slash mfruckus and become a patron at any level. Our patrons get access to exclusive content, early releases, guest list spots, even VIP parties with beer and food, all in exchange for a small monthly contribution. It really does make a difference and allows us to do this podcast, make records, create videos, go on tour, fly Tony back and forth, and all the other stuff we love to do for you guys. Patreon.com slash MFRuckus. Check it out. Thanks again, guys. You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. 